Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Psychic's Thoughts. Today we're going to be discussing a topic near and dear to my heart, something I've always wanted to talk more about, and um, I think I, I just kind of, you know, it's one of these things where I wait until the idea kind of floats into my mind and it feels like, okay, this is a structure or an idea or a concept I, I can talk about at, at length enough, comfortably, to where I'm not looking for my words too much or getting too wrapped up in the weeds. Even though I do both of those things, I try to pick a topic and pick a structure for that topic mentally that I can do. Because like I said, this isn't scripted, this isn't written down. These are just my thoughts off the top of the head uh, coming from places of my knowledge and research and experience and life and uh, and usually about things I want to talk about, you know. So once again, thank you all those uh, for all those who listen and... and uh, you know, support me on this side of the equation, right? Uh, my films and music are my priorities. Uh, those are my two main pieces of uh, art content, my main things that I push my stuff towards. But I do love recording podcasts on my free time, talking about some of these other things that I like to discuss at length without interruption um, and without needing too much editing and finesse and polish because these other aspects that I do take way more time and energy and stuff that I would rather pursue more heavily with that finite amount of time and energy. So without further ado, this episode is going to be about what it's like to make a movie. Of course, you can follow me on all social media platforms at Psychic34 on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, X, I guess is what we call Twitter now, but you know, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, all of that. Um, check out my latest music. It's just Psychic, P S Y K I C K, capital P, capital K on all streaming platforms. I've got my newest album finally coming out October 6th. It will be called Phoenix. It is a 10 track album that I have been working on for the past year. It is by far like way, way, way better than anything I've ever done before. It is mixed and mastered by the one and only Seize. Check out Seize 209, S-E-I-Z 209 on all social media platforms. And of course, check out his music on all streaming platforms, which is just Seize, S-E-I-Z, capital S. So, um, yeah, please check out and support our content. And of course, Relating to this topic, check out my short films. So you can check out my YouTube channel, it's just Psychic, P-S-Y-K-I-C-K. Or you can check out my new production company with my buddy, uh, Mr. Norcus himself. Psychus Productions, P-S-Y-K-U-S Productions on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. Check us out, we've got a couple short films up right now, and we're in development on multiple others. Currently I'm writing a screenplay, which is one of my better screenplays for a short film I've written in a long time. So I'm currently writing that, hoping I can get that, um, this new picture I'm working on financed and and shot and finished, or at least filmed by the end of the year, um, or beginning early of next year, spring of next year, um, due to schedules, especially in the holiday season, it's hard to get everybody in one place and, and that's okay. So... Anyway, lots of exciting things coming down the pipeline. We've got Phoenix album coming out October 6th. We've got a new short film that I'm working on. We've got multiple short films and, and, and mini-series and uh, webisodes and a bunch of other content coming from Psychus Productions and so much more. So once again, thank you all for the support. And today we're going to discuss what it's like 
to make a movie. Let's get into it. Now, before I get started into what it's like to make a movie, let me get some disclaimers out of the way, okay? Because this is very important before I get into it, and so I can feel comfortable just talking more freely. First and foremost, I'm not the most knowledgeable filmmaker or film enthusiast in the world. Not by a long shot. I am 23, I am a senior in film college, and I've been making movies since I was 11. How good are they? Not very. I didn't get good at making films and really started... I mean, I actually started taking it seriously at 13. So 13 is when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And been pursuing that through education and through trial and error. And, yeah, I can say the first seven years of that was just, you know, little home movies, some stop-motion animation. I have gained a few small, like, you know, Scholastic Awards and this and that. Nothing much, right? Um... And as a filmmaker, I'm constantly seeing, you know, what others are doing in my field at my age or at my, you know, general caliber. And I'm just so impressed and, and excited by what my generation and generations slightly younger or slightly older are able to produce, you know. And I've been slacking, partially because I've just been busy with school and rap and stuff. I mean, I've still been making a bunch of shorts and films and stuff, just not at the caliber and not the quality that I... Uh, want you know for me it's like it's time to evolve and to step up my game and every time I do a film project much like a rap project I do I do step up everything becomes better higher quality in my general language of cinema and the techniques that I implement are more polished more refined and better thought out and I think that's the goal for any filmmaker so I am new Right? I am young to this. I haven't done everything. And I'm not going to speak like I have. I'm not a Spielberg. I'm not a Scorsese. I'm just a guy who loves to make films and, and watch films. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Because at the end of the day, all we are are storytellers. And the techniques and the methods in which we tell stories can be very, very complex and intricate, but also just incredible. So that's a disclaimer, right? I've been writing, directing, doing all kinds of films. Now, throughout these films, short films, student films, right? I have worked on two feature films. One as a PA, one as... Or no, actually, I'm sorry. One as a boom op, one as a first AC, which is assistant cameraman. Um, I've been a PA on a professional TV show, you know... I, I don't know the budget of the show, but I can assume it was about $300,000. I was on set for that for a week, which was awesome. And it worked me to the bone, and I learned a lot. Um, you know. So it's not just stuff that I've produced. I, I've worked on professional music videos now. I've, I've done all kinds of things. Uh, and I'm still doing more, right? Still more offers, more things. So I'm new. There's not, I've learned a lot, and I've done a lot, but I haven't done everything, and there's still so much more to learn. So if you're an industry expert, or if you've been doing this longer, if you have way more experience, take this with a massive fucking grain of salt. This is just one perspective, one angle, but I do feel 
that with the versatility of experience that I've had over the years from different places and different categories and subgenres of films and with different budgets, prices, and people, I just want to talk about what it's like to make a film purely from my point of view, from being psychic, right? Because I think there's a lot to learn. And for those who are into filmmaking or those who are just curious and kind of wonder, I wonder what it's like. This is going to be as a digestible kind of, this isn't going to teach you how to make films. This is just anecdotal storytelling, kind of fun. And you might learn something along the way or might be entertained. So please take all that into consideration as a massive grain of salt and a huge disclaimer to what is about to be said. Also, this isn't scripted, so I'm going off the top. So I may wrap myself up in circles here, telling stories or trying to get points across, so bear with me. Um, and I'm keeping this in mind that the majority of you listening are not in film or television. And if you are, you're either relatively at my level or new to it. That's not to say there aren't people who are listening who are more familiar with it, right? But this isn't going to be a technical, jargon-spewing, heavy podcast about things that no one's going to be able to relate to or understand. I'm going to try to break this down and make this really relatable. So if you are into film, if you've been studying it like I have, and if you've been in it like I have, this podcast might annoy the living shit out of you because it's going to slow things down to a grinding halt for those of us who already know this shit. And also, the second benefit of doing this is to reinforce what I already know. From what I've learned professionally, in college, on set, and from my own personal experiences. This will reinforce because in so many ways I will be simplifying it in teaching. I'm not going to give you the whole backstory of when I got into film. I'm not giving you the whole psychic origin story with film. I'm going to bounce around time. I'm going to talk about this and that. And I just want to kind of break it down and structure it as if we are all making a movie together. Lastly, I have been in every, generally every position, um, not in a professional sense, right? But I've worn every hat a little bit, right? I've been a DP. I've been a sound mixer. I've been a boom op. I've been a director. I've been a writer. I've been a producer. I've been an editor. I've been... I say grip and electric, I've been genie, I've been whatever, right? Through various films of working with friends on my own, in-class assignments, summer camps, so on and so forth. I've been a production assistant, which is a PA. So, not to say I know how to do all these things as well as someone who specializes in them. No, not at all. But I've done a little bit of it, so I get a little taste of it. And the only reason why I'm saying that is I, I have a semi-well-rounded experience. It's not as well-rounded. I'm not going to sit and talk like I know cameras and know lighting and know how to shoot a film like a cinematographer, cinematographer who's been spending their career and life force figuring out how to be the best cinematographer possible. No, I'm not going to act like that. I'm in a sound specialty, but honestly, as much as I love sound and as good as I am at it, I'm pretty damn good at doing it now. Not perfect, but I'm good good enough. So sound is my technical specialty and proficiency at school here because that's the emphasis I'm assigned in. And there's no directing emphasis here, so it's not even an option. But directing is my passion. And I've been directing for 10 years through various scales and complexity. 
And beyond and outside of film, I've also been leading groups from school projects to leading an underground rap group and record label for nine months and being their president. And that was very difficult and tumultuous. At the same time I was doing that, I was also directing the biggest film, which was still a short film, but it was still the biggest short film I've ever directed. So that was a lot of learning there. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about is based on that concentrated five-month span. So, anyway, I just want to point that out there. I'm going to mostly be talking from the experience of a writer, producer, and most importantly, a director. But I've done a little bit of everything, but I'm not going to talk about this like I'm a cinematographer. I'm not going to talk about this like I'm a grip. I'm going to mention those roles. I'm going to break down the basics of them. So, yes, please take all that into consideration. And uh, I'll do more like these. This won't be the only one. We'll just see how and where it goes. So anyway, buckle up and uh, get ready as I talk to you from my point of view of what it's like to make a movie. Here we go. Filmmaking is interesting. It's one of those things where it's a marriage of creativity and technological innovation. It's almost like science and English mashed together, right? But there is another underlining thread. Something that when you're on set, or when you're deep in the weeds, or when you're studying film, we often sometimes forget as filmmakers to reprioritize this. And it's not because... It, 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 I don't want to be too general and too stereotypical. We don't always forget this, but this is just something that we get so caught up in the technical and the figuring out how to do, we forget why we're doing it. What's the service of it? Films are a weird thing. There's not anything quite like it. You come together with a group of people, and it can range on size and scale, budget and location, complexity or simplicity. But regardless, you're all coming for one thing, to tell a story. And hopefully, at the end result, that story is something that people carry and cherish with them. And it can be a short film, it can be a feature film, it can be a documentary, it can be anything, right? Whatever it may be, it's difficult and has its own subtle intricacies to it. Film and television and creation of such as a whole has a lot of universal parts and components and things. However, each film and each shoot is slightly different depending on what is required of it. And it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Because it's a marriage of manual labor, a lot of physical, intensive manual labor. It's a marriage of financial management, with careful planning and logistics, with safety, right? As well as artistry. And it combines so many subsects and counterparts in different sections of different fields of life, of professions, marketing, business management, PR, from ballistics and armory and stunt work and pyrotechnics and explosives, to theatrics, from acting to directing to stage management, to visual art, like, you know, traditional visual art, from painting 
and costume design and prop design and VFX, physical visual effects, to coding and computer-generated images, which is CGI, and editing, to audio design, post and on location, and so, so many more. And, of course, the bigger the film, the more complex it is, usually, right? Films are expensive to make. They take a lot of time, they take a lot of labor. They're mentally, emotionally, and physically exhaustive. And a lot of people will quit the film industry because of how intensive it is. Is it fun? Is it rewarding? Yeah. Is it always that way? Absolutely not. It's extremely stressful and there's a lot of components going on. And it feels weird sometimes because as fun as it's exciting and as important as it is to us to make films for you, the audience, or television. This applies to television in some ways too, but I'm not a television expert. So I can't speak on that as, as freely. But I have worked on some TV stuff and there are a lot of similarities. So it kind of, a lot of this will cover that as well. But anyway... But we all do it in service of the story. That's where it all begins. The idea, right? There is a lot that goes into making a movie of any kind, of any caliber. I'm going to just do a very, very fast bullet run just so you understand the scale and complexity and the multiple moving parts. First, you have the idea. Then you have to write out that idea and create a premise. And then you make a slug line and, you know... Uh, I'm sorry, a log line and a slug and a couple other things to make it a presentable pitch. Then you pitch that idea. Maybe you have a synopsis, maybe not. It just depends on the movie. And then once that's approved, if you're doing a more traditional route and need to get funding, and it's approved at least to continue uh, funding, at least to write out the screenplay, then you have to write the screenplay out. And a screenplay for a feature film usually consists between 80 to 200 pages, give or take, depending on the scale. Usually in a traditional drama, one page on a screenplay, the way it's uh, spaced and the way the font works, usually one page is about one minute of runtime, right? So if it's 80 pages, it's 80 minutes. That's not always the case, of course, with action and, and different dialogue and pacing and tone, but it's a rough approximation that helps give us an idea of how long the movie is and what type of genre it falls under, right? So the screenplay goes through multiple iterations. First drafts, second drafts, to 200th drafts. Whatever it takes. Rewrites and then restructures. Sometimes the final draft isn't the final draft and by the time it's being shot it's actually being rewritten on set. But it all starts there with the idea and the screenplay. Then there's budgeting, location scouting, casting, Right? Allocation of budgeting. Um, all these other components thrown into the mix. Hiring of the different crew and cast. With scheduling, planning, meeting, shooting dates, crew calls, all these things set up. Scouting of the, the locations to understand what limitations and what to prepare for. Then possibly, maybe dress rehearsals. Maybe some previews, 
visuals, some B-roll shot to get some extra insert shots before the actual principal photography. Then you move in, and that's all part of pre-production. And then you move into production, which is the principal photography and possible reshoots. And you go in, and that's when you actually shoot the real film. And then if you need, you might go back and do some reshoots. And then you enter post-production. And post-production is where you're cutting together the dailies, which I don't even know if many people do anymore, but is essentially the footage you got for the day so you know if you have your coverage. Right, a scene breakdown, sides, uh, shot list, that's all part of pre-production too, I failed to mention. But anyway, all that prep work, you know, stunt coordination, planning, safety, logistics, all of that. Food, catering, all that's figured out in pre-production. Then you shoot it during principal, might do pickups and reshoot, and then you go into post, dailies, and then the multiple stages of editing, right? From the editor's cut to the director's cut to the fine cut to the final cut. To the theatrical version of the final cut to the director's version of the final cut, depending. And then it goes back into the publicity, marketing, distribution. And then there's also post-sound attached to the end after the picture is locked during the cut which is once all the sequences of the images is locked in place and that won't be altered, then the sound design comes in and does their magic, which is crucial to the quality of the film and is often forgot about, and visual effects as well, and all these other components, color grading, such. And then it is sent through distribution, whether to be released on streaming or in theaters or just on YouTube. Just depends. That is the dirtiest, quickest, off-the-top rundown for getting a shit ton in between. And I apologize. There's a lot more that goes in even than that. That's just to give you a rough idea of some of the scale of this. And this can be applicable to a 5-minute short film or a 90-minute feature. Right? It really doesn't matter. And once again, I'm not even covering everything. I'm just covering the most basic steps. So there's pre, pre-production, production, and post-production. Remember those terms, I'm going to be using them a lot. Okay. So that's the basic rundown and structure of what it's like. And then even after that, then there's screenings and test screenings, and there's possible re-edit and reworks, and then... So there's a whole other aspect to it. But I'm not going to worry about that. So, anyway... It all starts with the idea, right? Writing out the screenplay. There's not much to say about this. There's not too many interesting things to say about this other than this might be the most grueling part. And sometimes it's divided up, right? The screenwriter um, is, just the, is just writing the screenplay, right? Maybe with some others involved and isn't directing. Sometimes the director will... Also, write the original screenplay. It just depends. Depends on the person, depends on the film, depends on the budget, all these other c components. Sometimes directors want to just direct already written stuff. And every role is important. Film is not a one-man job. It is an every person's job. Every role is crucial 
to the quality and finality of that movie being finished and of a certain quality and telling that story. It doesn't matter if you're a production assistant getting coffee because if the fucking crew and cast don't get their coffee, they won't perform as well. They just won't. If you're a sound guy, if you're an art department, whatever it means, it's crucial. The role is crucial. There's a reason why it's there. There's a reason why people pay good money for it. Okay? So, for a lot of people who don't know film and don't understand or just kind of watch it from a glance, it's an infatuating thing to see, like, the auteur way, which is where the director is God, is king, and has not only final say, but overall control in totality of the production of the film. That's not the case anymore. The director has creative control and has final say. They are the leader of the group. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the most fun or the easiest job by any means. In fact, it's one of the harder jobs to do. Uh, why? You get all that power, you get creative say. Yeah, that's nice, but with great power comes great responsibility. And the responsibility is heavy. Does the director usually get more credit if the film is done well? Yeah. It's easier to channel the criticism to one or two people, you know? And if you don't know film, you're usually going to break it down into the most obvious roles. Director of photography or cinematographer. Oh, it looked pretty. It was well shot. That's the DP. That's a cinematographer. Not the camera department. Not the lighting department, which it takes both of them to make a shot look good, right? You got G&E. You got lighting. You got... All these things, right? Grips and electric, which is G&E. They're in control of making sure the lighting, the rigging of the lighting, and assisting in the camera department for its visuals, as well as power management and electrical management throughout the production is safe and done right. And there's probably more to it I'm missing. But that's the gist of it, Right? And then there's multiple people operating the camera. There's the camera op, there's the first AC, or sec and even second AC, depending, assistant cameraman, right? There's possibly a focus puller who's remotely pulling focus on the camera from a distance if the camera's in motion with a steady cam, which is a rig that helps stabilize the camera's movement and is operated by being attached to a big-ass vest on a person who's walking and has kind of like a gyro arm to help stabilize its motion, right? So the DP, the director of photography, is the director of the camera department and kind of the director of the lighting department. I mean, needs them, isn't the direct, you know, authority to the lighting department. They have their own, you know, busboy and key uh, grip and all that, but... It is um, it is one of those things where they're in service to the camera department because the lighting is directly influencing the camera. Right? The sound team is more condensed. They're just... I mean, everything is servicing the overall story, right? Once again, everything leans, leads back to that. And the director, who's the general of all of it from the hierarchy, right... So there's department heads, and those department heads, it's like a military st structure, hierarchy structure, 
right? You have the main general, the main head honcho, who oversees and orchestrates and organizes it all, the director. And then you have the department heads who synthesize, organize, and lead their department teams. So there's not micromanagement, or not as much. And then each person, each individual is responsible for themselves and for each other and for the betterment of the quality of the film. And most people are professional enough to be able to handle themselves. It's not like they're being bossed around constantly. However, because of these hierarchies and because of power dynamics and because we're human, this might often go awry, which we'll talk about later. So there's a lot of complexity to it. I'm not trying to overburden you with information here. So let's say you get your screenplay off the ground. I'm going to gloss over that since that's not as interesting to talk about, but you have a good idea, you write it out, go through the multiple phases. This could take 6 to 18 months to 10 years, it just depends. And let's say you get it greenlit and pitched and financed by something, whether you fund it yourself or someone else does it. You know, you attach producers, you do crowdfunding, you get a big donor or a couple people who want to support you financially and they become your executive producers which technically have more authority than the director because they have financial power and filmmaking regardless of what scale regardless of how artistic it is is a battle and clash and debate of three things at play four i guess time money practicality and artistic vision or creativity that is the ever clashing battle and the director's job is to protect advance and advocate for the story whether they've written it or the screenplay was already written by someone else by a screenwriter and they the director was assigned to it that's their job to orchestrate the creative assembly of it and to bring it into a final state and hopefully one of quality. The producer's job is to make sure that the financial and logistics of getting it done is done on time and done safely. Their biggest role is during pre-production. They are kind of the director of pre-production. While the director is still there and helping oversee stuff, especially if they're a bigger name director, um... The director is more so planning for the later stages of pre-production and for production. So they're kind of busy. I'll talk from personal experience now on how this kind of plays out. I directed a short film. Uh, good Lord. It was only, was it a year ago? Couldn't have been. Two years ago? I don't know. No. A year ago. Good Lord. In uh, March of 2022... Uh, well, by January, and this was a school assignment, but regardless of it being a school assignment, it was very hands-off, and it was, still to date, the biggest production I've directed, right? I've directed and written and produced and just been a part of my own productions throughout and school projects over at least 40 now, small scale, nothing too big, right? And it's difficult. You got to get... Your friends or your colleagues or people you work with, you got to find the money to finance it. You have to use your own equipment or use a collection of everyone's equipment. You have to rent. It's complex. It's very hard to do it your own, you know? 
There are some things that make it significantly easier, like the advent of digital technology and social media means and other other ways, CGI, Unreal Engine. There are things that we have at our disposal that makes filmmaking way, way, way easier than it was back in the day. But there are things back in the day where it was so much easier then. They didn't need as many permits. They didn't need as many location scouting and, and all these things because there wasn't as much money and people telling them where they can and cannot shoot. But now that we live in a digital age where everyone has a camera, there's a policy everywhere for if a camera is allowed. Right? And that costs money to get permission to shoot there. Whereas back in the day, I can only imagine where, yeah, there are still places you'd have to get permission, but if you went in a field and butt-fucked nowhere, or if you went on someone's property who honestly didn't care and you could just talk to them, you can get it shot. And that's not to say you can't do that nowadays. It's just not as easy, and it's dangerous. We live in a time in America where people are more paranoid about their well-being jeopardized. They'll shoot you if you have a camera. <laughs> it's happened before. It's no joke. Um, so anyway... Regardless of that, getting your own crew, your own cast, all that is not easy. And so part of the benefit, and I'll talk about what film school actually does, for those of you who are curious. But one of the benefits, which I'll talk about later, that film school actually has is it facilitates the necessity to make a film. Or a short film of whatever varying scale and complexity, it just depends on the school you're at. And if it's like a senior thesis or like an intermediate project throughout your time at that school... Mine was an intermediate project, but regardless, they have the funds, they have the safety net, you're being classically trained on how to watch and learn cinema, how to understand it in a level that people just can't know. You're learning and getting taught from industry experts. You're networking with other like-minded individuals who will make it in their own career path, right? So there's a lot of benefits to it, but one of the benefits is it actually does facilitate the necessity to make a picture. And to have a lot of that equipment secured and to have some of those locations and have these things already not easy, but a little more streamlined and focused and a way to teach you how to do it. Truly, how to do it properly and professionally. How to manage your equipment. How to get location permits. How to shoot safely. How to schedule... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people in my cohort and a lot of people in my school and, and a lot of people in film school across the nation who think, oh, I could just be like Tarantino. I could just pocket my money and save my money that I would use or would spend going to college and go make my own movies. Maybe. Tarantino was raised in a different time. It's not as easy to just get your ass up and go make a movie. And what money? You'd have to be working a nine-to-five or something... And the odds of you getting in the film industry isn't impossible. I, I love that film is so democratized that anyone can do it at any point, regardless of your prior career path or your knowledge or expertise. But you may be stuck for a while. So if you're going to be stuck, you might as well be stuck getting a degree that, that shows you have a little more validity and a technical skill. But also, more importantly than the degree itself, get that network. Get that experience. Truly learn. And... You know, what my parents told me and what I do truly believe is you get out of college what you get, what you put in, right? If you go to class and you're just looking at your phone, you're not paying attention to what the professor isn't saying and you're just doing the bare minimum to get a passing grade, well, great, you'll get that degree and that's great. 
and you'll get some hands-on experience. So I'm not saying you won't learn anything, but you won't get as much. You know? It can be boring. I Hell, I look at my phone sometimes. Shit, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there are times where I'm out of it and I don't care. There are days, there are moments, sure. But overall, I really try to listen. I really try to pick up what these people are saying. These are These are filmmakers who have been doing it for twice as long as I've fucking existed. They have something to say. They're not just there for no reason. You know? You have to be knowledgeable enough you have to be skilled enough to be able to be a professor, in my personal opinion. That doesn't mean they're all good. That doesn't mean everything they say is gold and of value. You just have to learn with each professor in each class what you want to take away from it. But you have to be there to try to take something away from it. Otherwise, you're wasting your money and time and energy. So network. Make some films. Make some friends. Watch them. Learn them. Get on set. Do stuff. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be working on these sets and doing all this professional stuff by the time you're out of college or while you're doing college. Whatever is applicable to you. But here's the truth. If you're learning and doing more film and or television, if you're in the television division, if you're doing more of that than you've ever done, making your own, being a part of others, and if you're learning more about it and focusing on it and working on it in and outside of school more than you were in high school or middle school or whatever, guess what? It's probably worth the investment because I promise you it's so much more difficult when you're not structurally forced to do so I promise you that because I'll tell you over the summer when I want to make a film and I'm like oh I got these ideas you know I might write a film and sometimes I'll make one but oftentimes I won't not because I don't want to but because there's not that much motive or incentivized factors I have the motivation to do so, but I have to make it of quality. It takes time, and I've got other things. I want to relax. I want to decompress before the semester begins, right? I want to enjoy my time off a little bit. Um, I've got albums. I've got other things I'm working on. And so I might shoot a film, or I might work on some other films, and I do that often throughout the summer, and I might write some of my own. So I can't imagine how hard it would be working a 9-to-5 to make ends meet, to pay for rent, to, to pay for film equipment, especially if you're not working a 9-to-5, and I say working 9-to-5 in film, it's often not that the hours are grueling, but um, but whatever, and you may not even be working in film at first if you don't go through film school. Now, I'm not saying those who don't go to film school don't make it in film, plenty do, and plenty go right into the film world. It really does depend on your location. Um... I'm sorry, but for folks who are not in in America in these locations, if you're not in New York, L.A., Atlanta, and maybe Chicago, and Boston, you're not going to be able to make movies as easily. You could still make movies. Almost every college has a film program or school. They're just, they're just, there's a reason why the best of the best are at these cities, at these hubs. Because that's where film is being financed. That's where they're being, that's where the big films are being made. That's where people live who make films. That's where the networking is. That's where the money is allocated. You know? And I went to a different high school. I didn't go originally. I didn't, I'm not from Cali. I moved to Cali. And I'll tell you, I've lived in multiple states throughout the southeast. 
and uh, they, you know, I've been wanting to do film since I was 13, so that started in Atlanta, actually, when I was a kid in Atlanta, and this was two years into Marvel starting. This was before Marvel started really moving their facilities into Atlanta area. You know, they didn't start that until 2013, uh, 2014, 2015, so a couple years after I moved. Um, but yeah, so, um, but in almost every place I was, they're like, yeah, film was cool, all that. And diff- multiple places I lived, South Carolina, North Carolina, all these states, the high schools, the colleges, when I was looking into going to college at multiple places, they're all like, oh, Hollywood is dead. What you knew, the film isn't being sent back. All this horse shit. Okay, Hollywood isn't dead. Is the big, big top 1% highest budget movies and shows being shot elsewhere? Sure. Why? Because there's more land there. There's less of a population. It's just a logistical thing. And it's cheaper. They get tax incentives and breaks, and they get... They're not charged as much. It's just more expensive because L.A. is just more densely populated. That being said, I cannot stress this enough. Film and television is still in L.A. more than it is more uh, anywhere else. New York is second. That's it. I mean, yes, it's being filmed elsewhere. But all the producers, the directors, the actors, the networking, every other small independent film... A lot of the studio lots and a lot of the predestined space and production houses and rental equipment are in those two cities. I'm sorry, they just are. If you're going to rent your camera equipment from a nice place or if you're going to send your film for final colorization or stereo mixing, most likely it's going to be in L.A. and or New York. It just is. That doesn't mean you can't make a film anywhere in the world. That's the beauty of the internet and the digital era. We absolutely can you could be a successful filmmaker in Kentucky. You could be a successful filmmaker in Illinois. You could be a successful filmmaker in Washington State. By all means, you can shoot films there. You can get equipment. It's not impossible. But it's much more difficult. The culture, the language, the financial and technological means and the infrastructure to be able to produce and make films and network appropriately are just not as built out anywhere else compared to L.A. and New York, and a few other cities, right? And globally, if you want to talk globally, you also have uh, Toronto, Paris, Hong Kong. Those are the other big hubs of films globally. Once again, not to say there aren't every every country has a film commission. Every country supports and has incredible film ventures, but when we're talking about the largest, most successful infrastructure for film, that's what you have to look at, right? It's the same with military, right? When, when people talk about the military, you know, in America, American military, if you want to get into the military services of any kind, or especially if you want to become a general, where do you have to live? There's four I think three or four general locations that is preferred. If you want to be a higher up top brass military, you either live in the D.C. area or Virginia. Because isn't that where, um, oh Lord, what's the name of the academy? Point? Point West? 
West Point? Oh, Jesus, I forget the name of it. I apologize for the military folk who know that. Anyway, I used to know the name of it. Um, that's where you go. That's where the top brass military folk go. It's not to say you can't become a military general if you go to a different school or live somewhere else or get a different degree. It just means you're going to have a harder time. Right? It's the same thing. There's infrastructure that is designed around these industries that immediately aid in the ability to do so. It's just a massive difference. And speaking from experience, the ability to shoot a film in North Carolina, it's there, but you're doing a lot of it on your own. And there's not a lot of like-minded people. It's not to say there aren't other filmmakers in that area. There are. I, you know, I was there for three years. I met them. And there are schools that had great filmmaking programs. But if you're doing stuff outside of that college, in that city or in that region, it's just harder. There aren't as many film rental camera equipment places. There are no places to rent out. There's no program like Gigster there. There isn't IATSE crew members waiting to pick up a gig. Right? So there's this misconception that Hollywood is moving away. Yeah, some of it is. Right? The big ones. But their studios are still here, folks. They're still shooting TV shows and films here all the fucking time. You know? These complexes, these ranches, yeah, some are in Atlanta, right? They got the bite on Georgia in 2008, 2009 and started infrastructure building there. But that's, that's becoming a film town now, but it's more for the top 1% of films and shows. It's, like I said, everywhere has a place to make a movie and you could still be successful anywhere. And that's what I love about film. It's just harder. So I just want to make that really clear. Um, from personal experience living around, it is so much easier to meet like-minded people. And yeah, I'm in film college, that's part of it. But even when I was at uh, a school and going to summer programs that had lots and film programs in other states, it was great. And I'm not slighting them, I'm just saying they will still have to move to L.A. eventually if they want to make a true living consistently off of film. Or New York, or Boston, or Chicago, or Atlanta possibly. Atlanta's a little more fickle. It's a little more of a toss-up. Um, so, yeah. That's just part of it. Okay, I went off on a tangent there, but it's important to understand that. Let's talk about what it's like directing a movie. Okay, what is it like to direct a movie? It's an incredible experience, and I love directing, right? You're shaping the story, the pacing, everything. You have a little control over it. People look to you for final say. This is a complicated balance beam of being empathetic and caring and fun and exciting and passionate, but also being stern. Knowing when to compromise and knowing when not to compromise. It is a balancing act, and it takes years and years to get better at it, and I'm still getting better at it. I'm not great at directing, but I'm getting better. It's always been something I love to do within the broader scope of cinema. So, but, but it's, it's not easy. It's the most isolating job. Right? And... One of the hardest parts about being a director on any set, especially as you start working with more experienced people, is 
even if you have a crew that supports you and cares about your vision and cares about the story and servicing the story. And ultimately, a lot of people, there's this misconception that everyone wants to be a director and a writer. That's not true. There are people who just want to be a cinematographer or just want to be a production designer or just want to be a sound designer. That's their calling. They love doing it. They know how to do it really well. And it's, it's their part. It's their piece. It's their imprint. And that's great. And directing is complicated because it's often looked at as this ultimate catch-all. But it's not. Directing, overall, you do have creative control and vision. And you do have to orchestrate it all. Tie it all together. You know, things of this complexity, of this scale, with this many parts and people and time and energy and money do have to be funneled. And, and you know, championed by one singular voice and vision. At the end of the day. And there's a lot of politicking to it too. Especially nowadays. To me, it's just like hip-hop. It's just like anything. I treat everybody as an equal. I, I try not to cast or look down at anybody. doesn't matter your, your race, your, your, uh, uh, you know, your gender, your identity, your sexual orientation. I don't care. I don't care about your background. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care what you think or how you think. As long as it's not harming somebody else's well-being, we're Gucci and we're moving on, right? I don't care. I really don't. You could be completely aligned opposite of what I believe and I have no qualms with you. And I, I have friends who are that way. I don't care. It doesn't matter. They have their views. I have my views. Hopefully we can find some compromise. Hopefully we can have some interesting debates and discussions. Hopefully they could see my perspective just as I could see theirs. And we can come to an understanding. Right? That's all that matters to me at the end of the day. Is that we as a people come to an understanding that we are all in the same place. Just at different points in that place. But that doesn't mean anything. Right? It does. Structurally speaking, it does. It's a hierarchical power dynamic if you're off making a hundred million dollar movies then yeah you've got a little more say in authority and it's hard when you're an artist you compare yourself to your heroes and you compare yourself to the heroes at the point in which they influenced you which is usually by the time they were already successful but when you're on that grind when you're their age you do not compare yourself to them at that state and also we never know the behind the scenes of how hard and how many times someone fails fumbles and fucks up to get to where they are now nothing is an overnight success it may be overnight to you because you just heard of that person overnight that doesn't mean that they haven't been working on their craft, grinding, and, and pushing to get to that point. Sure, there are some people who get it easier. There's nepotism at play. There are people who are handed a plaque faster than others who have to work for it. Absolutely, I'm not saying there isn't. There are privileges and advantages in different positions depending on your family, depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your geographical location. No doubt. But the great thing about art, and especially within film, is it at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It may get you to that point of 
higher success or more jobs or better pay faster, sure, it does not mean you will sustain longevity in that because then it comes down to your knowledge, your expertise, your technical proficiency, and most importantly, how you interact with others. Those who do not interact appropriately or kindly with other people a lot, yeah, is a huge thing to, to, to kind of unravel, but I'll just say real quick. There will be times, moments, and periods in every filmmaker's career, regardless of what role, what position, where you're going to be an asshole. Sometimes it's required of you to get what you need or what you want, and other times you're going to be an asshole because you've been working for 10 hours straight, you haven't eaten in four hours, you're working on three hours of sleep, and you still have a two-hour drive home, right? And you have seven more days of this in a row. It is grueling. It is so mentally and emotionally exhausting when you're working some of the more labor-intensive things or when you're working a long shoot that sometimes people are going to get snappy. However, most people understand that because almost everybody on set is in that position in some extent or will eventually get there. Of course, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. It's never worth it. Right? Your energy on a set can radically affect everyone else. The way you mumble your, to yourself, the way you talk shit, the way you look, the way you appear. First of all, you never know who, what, when, and where can see or hear you. There are cameras, there are lights, there is sound equipment everywhere strewn about. So you never quite know if you're going to be if someone else is going to catch that. But there's also this feeling, this untangible vibe, if you will, energy that people will feel and sense. And that will weigh down on the production. This isn't to say every production needs to be honky-dory happy all the time, everybody's great best friends. No, a lot of the time you're just working a job. You respect each other, you respect e each other's craft. You may not be drinking buddies with everybody, you may have a couple that are like that. Fine, right? It just depends on the scale, the production, and the people involved, and who you are, and how you work. Some people are just there to get paid and make some cool art, and that's fine. There's no problem. Not everyone has to be happy. People could be grumpy. People can be doing stuff, right? And, and there'll be points, right? There'll be times. But it's harder when you're the director. It is. Because... You're, you have two roles, the overarching orchestrating and assembly of everything to service the story and the audience, most importantly, and then the actual job on set to manage all that, but then to also, more importantly, focus on the performance and the acting and the continuation of getting your sequences in order. A director... And a film in its totality is only as strong as its weakest link. And that's something to keep in mind. And there are going to be people who are less skilled. There are going to be people who don't understand this way. There are going to be people who are stubborn. And egos will collide. When art is involved and passion is involved, egos collide. 
And there's times where authority comes in. Oh, well, I'm the producer. I'm finding, I'm the executive producer. I'm financing this picture. What I say goes. They will have final say over the director at times. But on the minute creative decisions, they have no say. They don't want to. They don't need to. It's not their job. Right? The director may really want this shot. It may be beautiful. And to them, it may be important. But it wasn't written down as such an important shot. The DP's got some other more important shots that they find more pressing. The first AD and the producer's like, we're, we're short on time and we're short on money. We got to cut this one. We just got to cut our losses. I'm sorry. We got to move on. The director may throw a fit, may say, no, 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 we need this, damn it. And it's hard because the director is the only person that is not only being paid and authorized to know and, and to voice and orchestrate and bring together the story in its totality. So at the end of the day, the director has to understand and know and finally and, and be the main force, the main pushing effort of the entire story as a whole. Uh, think about what it will look like when the audience is sitting in their seats and the, dim, and the lights dim and they watch the silver screen. That's what the director has to think about, as opposed to the sound people. Obviously, they want it to sound good, right? They want it to think about when people are sitting down for it to sound good. But honestly, what they're more focused on, and speaking from experience, being a boom-up and being set mixer uh, numerous occasions and doing post-sound, I could speak on more validity with sound than any other department other than directing and writing, and producing, I guess, but mostly directing and writing. Um... You're just praying to God you can get close enough with the coverage. That the, 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 the framing allows you to get your boom mic close enough to the subject, that the loves are picking up, that there's no peaking, that the audio, the dialogue, most importantly, the audio quality is good and you have enough coverage of it for the post-editing of it. That's your main goal. Yeah, sure, you want it to sound good in the end, but that you break it down and that's how you compartmentalize it. It's more focused. You don't have to worry about the actor's well-being and their emotional state or their performance. You don't have to worry about what the final cut will look like. You don't have to worry about too much about the lighting or the framing or the composition unless it involves where the boom mic is. You don't have to worry about the makeup, the blood effects, the safety, the pyrotechnics, the money, the time, the energy, or any other component. The publicity, the marketing, how that will appeal to whom, what, when, where, or the audience. But all those things you have to consider when you're a director. And I believe a good director considers them, but doesn't let it weigh on them too heavily. Allows an appropriate amount of stress and influence of these things. Because if you allow all of it to hit you, and you're acting like it is the most important picture ever made to grace history of mankind, you're gonna fuck up. You're allowing way too much to overburden you. As a director, you have to compartmentalize. You have to really dilute and and kind of noise cancel all these things around you and focus on what's in front of you because you will have multiple stages throughout production where you can say okay well we we focused on the shot list and things will change as maybe new locations or maybe we realize this shot and framing is better but you do what you do in production you plan like a motherfucker so everything can run smoother because trust me, you'll, you'll be running around like a chicken with your head cut off if you direct any kind of thing with film or television. You just will. All of my directing peers and friends, people who've been in my position or more, understand this. 
when you come home from set, you want to cry, lay down, die, get back up, write out your next plan, your blocking sequence, re-edit your shot list, or really think about the importance of the audience. You obsess. You be, it, it becomes your life. If you care. I mean, maybe there's some directors who are just like, oh, let's just get this done. But from my experience personally and from other people who I've worked with, it's while they're in the thick of the directing chair, that is their life. When I was directing A Way Out, which please check out when you get a chance on YouTube and TikTok, all over. Um, it was small potatoes compared to a lot of people. But for me, it was the biggest thing I've done at that time. And still, because it was through the school, because it's facilitated that way. Now, I was assigned randomly as director because last name and just order, and we were assigned this in January. We were paired with our groups, and it was during the end of COVID when we were phasing in. So the first three weeks of school were staggered and just online before we had to move into person, which is kind of cool. Weird and didn't help, actually, but it was, it was definitely an interesting time. Now, I want to be a director, and I work towards being a better director. Sure, I know sound, and sure, I, I try to learn and understand and push myself on my free time to learn and, and do and try more things and hear from my friends who are special specialists in certain fields. You know, talk to my cinematographers, talk to my, uh, you know, production designer friends and learn what they know. Not that I'll be as good as them in that specific field, but just to get a better sense and to know how to communicate with those who are. Because being a director is being a communicator, nothing more. It really is. It's just if you could communicate with your department and let them understand what your vision is and understand what they know and what their vision is and accommodate and then orchestrate it all, more times than not, you'll end up with a good picture. So with a way out, I was assigned. And I... Uh, as director, and I was happy. I was, I was just luck of the draw. Um, I mean, you can kind of opt in. You can say, "Are you interested in being a screenwriting or screenwriter or director?" And but then it's still whittled down to a bunch of people, and it's left up to chance. Now, I got really lucky because I, I said, "Yeah, I want to be a director." Mind you, no one else in the group that I was assigned to wanted that. Obviously, there were four total groups in this class. And the entire semester, it's intermediate film production at CSUN, and the entire semester was dedicated to making the short film. But yeah, we had lecture classes, and then we, uh, we, we uh, you know, used what we learned in the lecture classes, hopefully, to help benefit. And some of those lectures were great. They were some of the most in-depth learning of the mechanics of film and film language that I've learned up to that point. You know, I knew a lot, and I've learned a lot over the years. This is my third year going in, so I, I knew quite a bit, but it was still, I mean, or second, second or third year, third year, I think, but it was still, it was like, wow, I don't know, this is even more info, and now it comes with a task at the end of the semester, in the next few months, we're going to have a finished product, and it's big for me, you know, I've done short films, I've done small things, I've done five, six, seven minute films, sure, but on smaller budgets, with less crew, and less equipment, and less experience, yeah, is it still a school project? Is it still college? Is it not? It's not a senior thesis. It's not a thirty thousand dollar film. Though I wrote a, a wrote a screenplay for the senior thesis and pitched it, made a thirty five page packet proposal. You know, wrote a fifteen page screenplay, 
had a crew, a soft law crew, had a budget estimate, had a purpose of statement, had a fundraising plan, all of it. Mood board, references, the whole nine yards. It took me five months to make this packet and to pitch it. And only, you know, only four films get chosen. And there are 30 applicants and uh, mine didn't get chosen. Oh, well, not a big deal. It was odds were against me, statistically speaking. Some of my friends and colleagues, in fact, two of them that worked on with me on a way out got picked. And I was, you know, I'm so happy to see that their project got picked and they both did phenomenal fucking job. Just in their directing and writing so far from what we've seen of the roughs and dailies is just incredible. So kudos to them. They've learned a lot and they've done incredible work. You know, I'm not stressing it. We, we got our own production company we're making here. I've got my own things. I'll figure out how to make what I want to make when and where. And it was great. It was a great experience to write that screenplay and learn how to put that proposal packet together. And now I have a solid short film with a proposal packet and a budget and a plan and a way to execute. Something I know I can make whenever and where I can as long as it gets greenlit. So that's the thing. Sometimes the school still forces and makes you churn out work that you may not be able to muster or have the structure or cohesion to do so on your own time. So with The Way Out, that's what it was. Now, I didn't write A Way Out. In fact, the writer of it directed his senior thesis, and so kudos to Gino. He did a great job. So he wrote A Way Out, you know, and we had some back and forth, but he wrote it. And by the way, when I talk about this, I want to just point out with A Way Out, it is the most complex short film I've directed. And everyone did an incredible job. Everyone brought their A-game. They, without them, the film would be nothing. You know, I did my part. I did the best I could. But honestly, it is of quality because of them. The crew, the cast, everyone brought their best for what they knew at the time, as did I. I know a lot more now. I know how to write, I know how to direct, I know how to produce a film way more than I do now. From that experience and from other smaller experiences and from just absorbing more throughout time and learning from my mistakes, just in a year, I know way more. So I'm excited, I'm eager to get back into the director's chair because I've been doing other stuff, helping other people, being sound, post-sound, being assisting, helping, producing, co-writing, all these things, and writing my own stuff, but haven't funneled that time or energy yet. So I'm excited to get back into it. So anyway, I just want to say they did an incredible job. So I'm not going to talk poor or badly about them because they all brought their A game. Were there moments where I wanted to strangle some of them to death? Yes, that's part of being a director. Did they drive me fucking crazy? Yeah. Did I probably drive them crazy too? Absolutely. I know I did. I know I pissed off my crew at times. Not because of how I was behaving. I was never rude or mean or I never tried. I never meant to be. I, I might have been a little sharp or, or a little, you know, a little rude at moments. But I was never intentionally trying to be negative energy. But times there were. And I want to talk about that specifically with this. Since this was my biggest directing experience. Like I said, I've directed other things before. But this was the biggest scale. So I was assigned as director, right? Gino wrote the script in a month, month and a half. This is a seven-page script, seven minutes, which doesn't seem like a big deal. And it's not a huge thing, but it's pretty big. It's pretty sizable. $2,000 budget that we all had to pitch money into. 
equipment that we were fortunate enough to use from the school, but expensive equipment. Equipment that if we rented it out would have made the film a six to seven thousand dollar production. And if we didn't have the facilities of the school and the discount of using the school as a location, we would have the film could have easily been about a ten thousand dollar movie. So we got a lot of discounts and made it a lot more available. That's also part of the benefit of film school. You get rental equipment, you get discounts, you get permits, you get things streamlined so things are done a little faster, a little more efficiently while you're still kind of crash course learning the, the, the basics and the complexities of it. You're not actually having to spend or die as much. <laughs> right, that's part of it. So anyway, this film was a lot. We were pulling, you know, we had a casting period. I mean, once the screenplay was locked in and I did some, I mean, we debated the screenplay. We debated the pace of the story, how many locations. And Gina was a great writer and a great director. And I consider him a friend or at least a colleague and a friend. I don't know if he considers me the same, but hopefully he does. But my point is that um, I pushed him. I, I said no a lot to his ideas, not because I didn't think they were good, not because I didn't think, you know, they were interesting. And I told him, I said, hey, no, this is a great idea. I like this. I think this would be cool. If we had more time and money, we would do this. But we don't. And that's part of it. I think good directors and producers and other people involved in the process, especially at pre-production stages, have to take into consideration the doability of a film as much as the importance or the creativity or the story. You could write the most grandiose, incredible story ever written. Can you film it? Well, I don't know. It's a balancing act, and not everything comes to fruition like that. George Lucas once said, directing is merely just the balancing of elements against you. It's how much can you get right when everything is supposed to go wrong. And that's what it's really like. Time, money is constantly burning away when you're shooting. Locations fall through. People may get sick or hurt or not want to do something. The performance may not be the way you want. You may not have as much time or energy to get the coverage you need. And coverage is important. Coverage is the shots and sequences and moments that are crucial to keeping the story continuous and piecing it together. They come up with a shot list and how many setups. So there's a difference. There's shots, right? The actual just shot. It could be an insert shot. It could be two seconds long. It could be two minutes long, right? That's the shot. But then there's setups. Setups aren't scenes. They're not, they can be. Usually they're correlated with scenes, but setups are when you need a break in the pacing. You can't just go for another take where new lighting, new camera setup could be a new location or could be a new part of the same location, right? Oh, we need to move the camera here and get this shot. And set up the lights here. This should be about a 10-15 minute setup. Right? So setups are different. Shots. You can have five, six shots in one setup. Right? Different coverage or angle. That doesn't require a pause in the production for the crew to set that up. To get sound. To get lights. To get camera. To get all these elements ready. You know, when you consider an hour for lunch and dinner, when you consider pauses, time for technical hiccups, time for actors to get ready, time for setting up, 
you, you lose a lot of time. And when you're working outside and you're working against daylight or you're trying to work at nighttime or certain weather conditions, that also alters. I made sure we didn't shoot anything at dusk outside. That's for sure. Or dawn. The light changes so dramatically. Sure, it's prettier, yeah, but it changes so dramatically, it'd be so stressful to try to pull that off. For what? For some visual flair? Listen, I love making a film pretty. I love making it visually intriguing. But you have to make cuts. You have to make concessions when you need the story to make sense. And that was my biggest goal. My biggest goal on Earth while I was making a way out was at the end of the day... When people watch it, and I annoyed the shit out of my crew when I kept bringing this up. When people sit down and watch it, two things. How do we retain their attention? How do we keep them interested? And how do we make them care? Because it's very difficult to make someone care about these characters and the scenario and the things that are happening within seven minutes. To have everything happen and not, and wrap up in seven minutes, right? For context, in a feature film, seven minutes is just the opening establishing shots and setup. It isn't even the setup of the first character. So when you have to tell an entire story in that time, you have to understand how much more truncated everything is and how hard it is to get your point across, or how hard it can be if you're not careful. I'm proud of it because I think we did a good job. Considering the complexity of the film and the way it was written itself, it was not an easy film to shoot. It is probably the most complex of all of our peers' films in that class you know a lot of them had one or two locations with complex elements sure some of them more complex than others but a lot of them were a lot more simplified because they understood that they needed that ours was never simple to begin with ours was about leaving a gang about balancing a relationship because of it and about death <laughs> Not easy to do, especially when you're not allowed to have weapons and when locations are a bitch to try to secure. Originally, they wanted uh, Gino and, you know, some of his friends wanted the um, five locations, I think. And I was like, no, no way. Five locations in seven minutes? It's a location every minute because the first minute and the last minute don't count. First minute, it's just setting up the bare minimum and the last minute is credits. So, no. <laughs> and actually, the movie ended up being like 6 minutes, 17 seconds. So it wasn't even a full 7 minutes, but it couldn't go over 7 minutes. So, that was our 5 months, $2,000, 7 minutes, 8 crew, 3 cast. Three main cast, four, four main cast, and then five or six extras. Or, no, three or four extras. Anyway, it was a lot. There was a lot to do with little time and little money. Oh, and the shooting of it, the actual time for principal photography, yeah, we did it in five months from beginning, being assigned as a group together, from having the final cut screened in class. That was the five-month span. But in reality, we had four days of shooting, that's not a lot of time. That's a day per location. We had one other day that I had budgeted with my producer, God bless him, um, for reshoots just in case, and we used it to better the film, and it was worth it. So, yeah, it was a lot. I had some phenomenal actors I got to work with. 
the casting was was a was a hell of a weekend. We had a two day weekend. It was all Zoom. It was all virtual casting to make it easier on people. You know, uh, my editor Marin, who ended up writing and directing her own short film, which is absolutely phenomenal. Her own senior thesis, just an incredible film. Eeky guy, go check it out. It's not out yet, but keep an eye on it, I guess. Um, cause it will be, and it's just, it's just fantastic. Um, she was a phenomenal editor, just a joy to work with. And she did more work than she needed to do. You know, I, I commend her for that night and, and I tried to just give her as much like credit as possible. If I could pay her, I would have, you know, because she, um, she went ahead and filtered through. She's like, nah, this doesn't work for the character. No, no, no. She like, she made my life so much easier because at the same time, while I was trying to figure out locations, I was also having to figure out cast and I was also having to start building the shot list and help finish editing the screenplay. Now, usually you get way more time for all that, but because we're on a short time frame, we had like two months to do all that. And even though pre-production was the lightest for me, I still had to help finalize and push and do all that. And I annoyed my crew because we had weekly meetings for the longest time. And they kind of got annoyed. They're like, why do we keep having these meetings? And it's like, I don't know. Maybe I'm repeating myself too much. Maybe it's annoying. I, I understand. But one, I never scheduled these meetings that would take time out of their busy schedule, life, school, whatever. The meetings were always during class times, either after class or before class. It was always on the days where we would have class time dedicated for making this film anyway. Other than one or two exceptions, like the, the day or two before the actual film shoot. Because we had to shoot this film outside of class time. That's the other thing. Class time was dedicated for lecture and for pre-production meetings. And technically, you could go shoot your movie. Like, we didn't have to meet for class when you were shooting your movie, but, like, it was just the balancing of everyone's schedule, and we had to shoot on the weekends. It's just more doable for everybody involved, including the actors. So, it was a lot. It was very, very stressful. My poor friends and family had to hear it from the other side of just me and my stress. Oh, my God, is this good enough? Does this make sense to you? How would you react? I remember I asked my buddy C's one day when I was when we were in pre-production. We found out we couldn't use guns. We had to use knives, which kind of was a huge blow. It's like, okay, well, fuck. Because to have guns, to have fake guns, you'd have to have a safety officer on standby. And to have that, that was $300 a day on a $2,000 budget where... About $1,500 of that budget was already allocated towards location, towards food, towards a couple miscellaneous items and objects, you know? So that would have shot our budget to hell and back. So we couldn't do that. And so we didn't worry about it. We were just like knives. And then we found out even if we had physical fake knives, we would still need a safety officer for the stunt choreography. And I'm like, no fucking way. Well, then we'll still have knives in the story. We just won't show them. My crew, I think they wanted to kill me when I said that. And I'm like, guys, I don't want that either. But I want the story to be made. We can't rewrite the movie now. We're too late. You know, we have a month until we have to shoot. Because you have to get your locations and your permits and your rights secured. And that 
through our school. You have to get your locations, permits, and rights to shoot at these locations, which means you have to go, you have to talk to the owner of the location, you have to get the permit, you have to get it signed, you have to get it officiated, you have to pay the small, cheaper fee because we're going through the school, but you still have to pay that fee. And then you have to come back with that paperwork, with the insurance, with all of it filled out and proper to our equipment manager, and then he allows us to take out the equipment. And we only get the equipment for a certain amount of time. And obviously, if you don't have the equipment, you can't shoot the movie. One of the locations we were going to get was a house. A nice house. We talked to the owner. It was through Gigster. It was expensive, but we could afford it. And we were like, okay, we could do this. It was just for one day, so it would have made it work. And... The owner was really nice, and she was a recording artist. She was a vocalist for uh, Disney. And Disney outbid us. Originally, she agreed. We took a tour of the house. It was great. We were like, okay, this could work. I started blocking, writing my blocking notes. Blocking, for those of you who don't know, when you're directing, blocking is the sequence of movement, of action and of figuring out the logistics of literally where the actors and the subjects move and at what points with the dialogue and the action sequences going on. And sometimes you do some blocking beforehand. You know, rough sketches, just general layouts of an idea, bird's eye view, or if you're better at sketching than I am, maybe like with storyboards, whatever. Or if you don't have much time or energy, or it's kind of the last minute, you just figure out the blocking there. It just depends on your budget, your time, and, and what you're thinking of. I knew I wouldn't have a lot of time with my actors to do blocking then. We needed more time for the camera to be rolling and capturing takes. And the most pivotal, emotional scene, the climax, the whole bread and butter, and the most meaningful scene, and the longest scene, is this argument in this apartment, or this house, with the two main actors. It's the whole cruxed to me it was the whole emotional centerpiece and climax of the story it made everything matter and it was the most memorable part in the writing and what i would hope to be with the performance and so with limited time and energy and scheduling with my two main actors i did i was fortunate enough to schedule time to rehearse it with them and go over it go over their lines go over the emotions make sure they're comfortable with each other and it was fun it was a blast. It was difficult, but it was fun. Not because of them, just because of me figuring this out. And, but it turned out before we got into that rehearsal that the location fell through because Disney bought it out. So we had to revert back to shooting in the dorms, which is much cheaper and technically easier because I lived in the dorms and our, our uh, sound and She's actually a production designer, Chloe, who, she's incredible, good friend, or at least, once again, I consider her one. <laughs> I never know if other people consider me friend, and I don't want to assume. But um, she's great. I mean, we really hit it off, and she was just lovely to work with, really knows her stuff, and she, she knows what she's doing. She was kind enough to allow us to use her uh, dorm because it was nicer decorated. It felt more like a lived-in apartment unlike my dorm with all these guys living in it that was borderline a shithole. Um, same exact layout. So when rehearsal came around, right, we dodged the cost of having to rent this nicer place. Sure, we lost the nicer place, but we saved a shit ton of money in the long run. And it afforded me to be able to do rehearsals in the space. 
Because even though she has a nicer place, I didn't have to go down and go around to her dorm. I just invited the actors over to mine. It's the literally the same structural layout. Nothing was different other than maybe some pieces of furniture. So with that, we were able to block this motherfucker out flawlessly. And it shows when you watch the climactic argument scene in the apartment when Jay, the main character, comes home and argues with Allie. It is the strongest scene. Not only, And it's mostly because the actors. They did their job so perfectly that I hardly had to do anything. Just some emotional pointers, some things for them to consider, and the blocking. That's really all I had to do because they brought their A-game and made my life easier. Made me look good. <laughs> That's what you always want. It's hard. It's hard to balance these things. You want everyone to feel safe and comfortable. You want them to understand this is a place where they can collaborate, have their voice, and have their freedom to be authentic and have their artistry. That's something I kept uh, 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 pushing during the pre-production. I kept telling everybody, I said, listen, just because I'm the director, I'm not going to be ruling with an iron fist. Now, obviously, when I put my foot down or say, we got to do this, we got to do this. But I want you guys to have your creative freedom. I'm fortunate enough to get this opportunity to do this. I may not get uh, another chance through school. I may not get another production. I may not get my senior thesis picked. You guys may or may not get your senior thesis picked. You may not pitch. Who cares? The point is, if this is all of our only opportunity to make a film, and you know, fortunately, both two of the people there got to have their idea, uh, their senior thesis made, so they actually... They probably forget what it was like to make a way out. But I think they learned a lot in the process of that, whether or not they realized. Because watching the end product of what they had there compared to a way out. Now, obviously, a three-day shoot on a $2,000 budget with less experience and less crew compared to a, for a six-minute movie, compared to a 15-minute movie on a $35,000 budget for a week with way more crew and way more experience for everybody involved, is dramatically a different film. You know, and I don't doubt that if I were able to make my senior thesis, it would be way better than a way out, right? Just because of what I've learned and the resources I would have been able to have. But that being said, I think they still did an incredible job, we all did, considering the limitation of our resources and time. But it was a bitch. Because even once we got all the logistics figured out and we were able to shoot, I want to talk about some of the complex things that were going on personally in my head and in my heart while I was figuring out doing this that directors go through commonly that people may not fully understand unless you've been in this position. So let's get into it. Part two with directing. Okay. So some of the emotional, mental experiences I was going through while directing, and I, I've gone through this before, but it was the heaviest while doing a way out. It was intense. I was thinking of the picture as a whole. I wanted to make sure... I didn't want to just direct it for our peers in our film class. Yes, I wanted them to enjoy it, of course. But I knew that they would have to sit down and watch it. You know? I was thinking more of it long-term. If it sits on YouTube, if it sits on my channel, or whomever else wants to present it to people. Can it capture a random person who just wants to watch a short movie... Can it capture and keep their interest? Right? Does it make sense? Is it emotionally satisfying to the extent that it's set up to be? Right? All these other components that no one else in the crew 
is required or should have to think of, really. I mean, they can, but, like, that's not really the main point, other than maybe the writer, right? And that's just how it is. It is partially just the nature of the beast. So, yeah. I think it's kind of one of those things that's difficult to fully comprehend, and at the same time, it's isolating being a leader in any field, but especially in film as a director. Even though I, I offered, I optioned to be a director, and it was by chance that I got picked to be one, and no one else optioned in my group. Otherwise, you know, because there was only four teams, and only four people actually wanted to be director, and they all got to be directors. The team they were assigned to was random. Um. And I'm glad that the team I got was the way they were. They were exquisite. You know, sure, I wish I got to work with other people too, of course, more, and got to meet more people, but it was a great time with them. And there were truly some, they were all some incredible filmmakers that are going to go very far in their career. I don't doubt it for one second. Um, but the thing is that when you're in the director's chair, and when you're not in the director's chair, when you're a crew member, you'll have critiques. There'll be things that you can see with an objective eye or see within your field or specialty that you wish the director would notice or care about or, or understand, right? We all have our different unique points of views and understandings of things in life. And the director has theirs. And whether they earn that role or given it or a combination or whatever... They do have final say. And it sucks sometimes. You gotta have to just let it go. Well, in some regards, it makes it way less stressful. Filmmaking is difficult and it's stressful at every capacity when you're trying to do well and when you're doing a lot on set. But when it's not all weighing on you and you don't have to be the one seeing it through to the end, you do your role to the best of your ability, you could stay hyper-focused in that and say, hey, I did my part. You know? When you're a director, you could still do that, but even if the film fails because you weren't able to lead or pull people together properly, it's still on you. And you can't blame other people, and you shouldn't. Even if you're part of a film that you don't appreciate as much or you don't think did as well, you know, to your friends and family, sure, you could say, ah, oh, I didn't really want to work with this director. Oh, they're kind of annoying, or oh, they didn't quite see it the way I thought it was going to be. Whatever, that's fine. That's part of being human. But don't go and badmouth somebody. You never know. I'm not going to lie and say it was always easy and lovely and fun to work with my crew. I'm not, but I'm not going to say they're not good at what they do. They are damn good at what they do. And they deserve all the praise because they pulled through and helped make one of the better films that could have been made with the resources and time we were given. No doubt. Like I said before, though, there were moments where I wanted to strangle them. But I don't doubt for a single moment that there weren't times where they wanted to do the same to me. That's just the nature of the beast. It really is. Um, but when you're directing, it's difficult because you're balancing all these elements. And I remember, I don't know if I finished this story I, I meant to. I remember I was playing Elden Ring. Elden Ring just came out. What a great reprieve. Perfect timing. First of all, one of the best games I've ever played, regardless of whenever it comes out. But at the same time, it was of great relief because I needed that break. At the same time, I was leading 50 Flames. I was president of this rap group of 35 people from around the nation trying to come together and put out a rap album and eventually become an underground record label. 
that was not easy because I was making albums at the same time. So, yeah, I was working on Dragon at the time. I just released Chameleon, and I was finishing writing and recording Dragon. Actually, in April, I finished recording Dragon. So, April 1st, 2nd, and 3rd were our primary filming days, I believe. And then the following week, like April 6th or 7th, was our reshoot day. So we shot Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And by the way, we didn't shoot full days. The only day we shot a full day, and it wasn't even a full film day, it was just a full regular day, was Saturday. I want to point that out because a lot of student films and a lot of people make their people stay for 12 hours. The longest one day I had people stay was eight. The shortest day was five, I think. Five or six. So, five, six to eight hours each day. Roughly, in total, is about 25 hours worth of filming. For four days. That's not bad. Considering usually two days is 24 hours. So four days, you know. Which I also think helped the production, helped the pacing. Um, it just wasn't necessary. We didn't need everyone there the whole time. There was no point. I try to be efficient when I direct. I try to get in, get what we need, get some extra stuff if we want and can. And that's it. I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to deplete their energy. I don't want to stay and burn money and time and energy for everybody if it's not necessary. And even if it is necessary, how necessary is it really? And maybe I'm backwards in this thinking, but to me, the comfort, enjoyability of working on a film set is almost as important as the film quality, the art, the story, the vision. Now, obviously, the art, the story, the vision is the priority, and... We as filmmakers know that we can endure and suffer a little bit just to make sure that end product is of quality. And I, I understand that. But I try at my best to not make these shoots grueling. There's no fucking point. There's no point. If it's in my power in pre-production to plan it out and know that we don't need this many hours because I know myself. I know how much time I need for setup and directing. And sure, did I feel that clock burn against me? Yeah. And were there days where I went a little over time? Yes, our first day especially. Our first day of shooting went over. Here's why. One, there was a fire. Now, 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 don't be alarmed. It wasn't on set. It was so far away, but we were shooting on top of a parking garage. It was the opening scene uh, of the entire movie. We were essentially just shooting the movie in chronological order. It just, it made sense. We were just, we were able to do so. Usually when you make a film, that's not the case. You shoot in order of convenience and availability. But it worked out this way anyway, so it was fine. So we shot on top of the parking garage scene, and this scene is technically the most complex scene of the entire film. It just is. It's got the most going on with the most characters, extras, a car, a crash pad for people, not for a car, for people to fall on. Um, it's got all these elements, right? And it sets the entire movie in motion. So if it doesn't make sense or if it's not well done, people are not going to stay engaged. The pacing was everything. 
And to me, that was something I'm, I might have focused too much on. But I kept reminding my crew. I was like, guys, you know, if you pull up TikTok, we all have TikTok, you know. And if you pull that up, watch seven one-minute videos in a row without interruption. And they're like, why? What's the point? They're all separate movies. And it's not like we're shooting an anthology. Sure, yeah, we're watching, we're, we're shooting one seven-minute story, yes. But the point is, if you can, would you, if you're at random scrolling through and you find something, a short film, even if you're into short films, would you be able to just be captured and stick with it? So I told them, I said, we had to have the hook. We have to make the movie as enjoyable and as captivating for at least people, so people are at least like, okay, so now what's going to happen? Within the first minute to two minutes. Nothing more, nothing less, or maybe even less, but nothing more than two minutes at max. And that's exactly what we did. By the time the opening scene is done and the title credit rolls in for the opening movie before we go into the climactic apartment scene, we're at the two-minute marker. So it was actually right on time. But, um, but I hold that theory, and we at Psychus Productions hold that theory close to our heart, where... We understand that people don't have time and energy like they used to. We're not trying to waste your time or energy. If you want an entertaining story or a thought-provoking story or whatever, we're going to give it to you and we're going to get you out at a decent hour. We're going to make sure that the time it takes to tell the story is sufficient enough. It, it fulfills what is necessary to get the story across, nothing more. And it's not going to be perfect. There are going to be times where we fuck it up. We don't always know. Sometimes we as directors or editors think this is important or think, you know, that's part of the balancing act. Maybe we're covering an audience demographic so certain people understand it where other people might get it instantly and didn't need some of that extra stuff. It just depends. So it's hard. The wider the audience, the harder it gets. And that's why there's test screenings and audience demographics at play and all these other components to kind of help whittle and narrow it down and make it more efficient and enjoyable. So yeah, that's just how it is. But with all that being said, you know, it's still, you need time to tell the story that is there, right? And so anyway... When we, when I was directing, Elden Ring just came out. I just was able to get seized to get it the day we submitted our permits in, which had to be a month before shooting. And we were playing this game. We had fun. And I remember I hit him up and I was like, hey, you know, we were close friends. And I, I'm, I, I struggled. I struggled with one component because I knew we didn't have much time and I knew we were bringing two actors that have acted a little bit but not a lot and then one actor who's acted a lot. Or two actors that have acted a lot, two actors that have acted a little. And I don't want to discriminate. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is, right? And I don't really care about how you look or what your experience is. Obviously, I want you to have experience or to be comfortable. But I also understand we are not the highest and mightiest film. We are a small student film that isn't even paying our actors because we can't. So I want to give some people an opportunity to act in something they may not get a chance to. And so I was kind of, my crew kind of scoffed at me for allowing one of the main characters, not main characters, I'm sorry, one of the characters' friends, an important character, for somebody who didn't act a lot traditionally in film. It's done some stage work and done a few short films, but nothing much. 
I'm like, well, listen, I want to give this guy a chance. His vibe, his, his general presence fits exactly how I'm thinking of the character, so he, he fits. And he'll suffice. It's not like, I mean, his character, and I, I'm going to try not to spoil the movie for those who haven't seen it, if you're interested to go check it out. Once again, check out A Way Out on uh, my channel on Psychic or at Psychus Productions. And then on my channel on Psychic, it's also on my Instagram and TikTok. But on Psychic, it's also uh, behind the scenes. There's a three-minute behind the scenes that kind of shows a little bit about what it looked like during shooting, which is pretty fucking fun. Marin edited that just in her free time without anyone telling her, and it was really well done. I mean, she just did an incredible job through and through. But anyway, um, so yeah, we cast somebody who, you know, my crew was like, really? I'm like, yeah, let's give some people a chance that wouldn't have an opportunity because maybe they'll surprise us or maybe not. Maybe they're not as good as we're hoping. I'm not going to give them the most important role that could jeopardize the quality of the film. Nothing against them. They're just new. You know, you just, you, if you're new to the field, you can't trust someone with the most important role. You got to give them an uh, entryway. And if you're new to acting and directors, seriously, get new actors, get people you haven't worked with if you can, or there are certain films and certain times where you're trying to strengthen the bond with actors that you've only worked with once. Right now I'm writing a film and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm bringing all actors that I have experience with, either friendly with, have known and worked with in, you know, lightly or who I've directed personally. Because I want to establish those relationships and I want to work with them again. They were lovely from what I saw. And they did exactly what I, I think would be necessary for the film I'm writing. So it just depends. But for this, I wanted to give a little mixture of new people who were kind of getting their feet wet and people who were a little more seasoned. And I think it was a good balance. I do. And I think the people who were seasoned carried it, of course, and might have shown the contrast and diff difference in, in ability to act. And so some people were like, yeah, you should have done this and that in hindsight. And I'm like, maybe. But I gave that person an opportunity. I made that connection. And they still did exactly what they could with what they knew, just like I did. We're all figuring this out as we go. That's part of it. Everybody's learning. Everybody's at different points. You can't act like... I mean, yeah, some people are more experienced. Like Spielberg and DiCaprio would be a different category, right? But like... Everyone is still learning. Everyone is still adapting, changing, and, and taking in new experiences. And when you're in a position of any authority or power, to me, it's one of those things where you shouldn't block or shut down someone's ability to grow and learn because you're trying to protect your growth and trying to make yours perfect. You don't know until you try. There are people who are more naturally gifted at something just because they don't have experience doesn't mean they're not good at it. And sometimes it's just there are people who may not have as much experience or may not be quite as good, but they're so much more enjoyable to work with. You'll find in the film industry 10 times out of 10 that if you're more enjoyable and pleasurable and kind to work with, even if you're not perfect, even if you're not the greatest visionary ever or the best in your field, more people will want to work with you than not because you're just enjoyable to work with and you still get the job done and you're still good. You're just maybe you're not the greatest ever. But who cares? Because you're enjoyable to work with. If you're a prick, but you're still the most brilliant, you might get some leeway because they're like, well, he is brilliant, but it's not really going to get you that far. Because after a while, when people find out how much of a pain you are to work with, they will avoid you. 
quality people who care about their well-being on a set and care about if they're heard, they're cared about, they can perform better. So you start losing the pool of quality people who want to work with you. And that's why, personally, I wholeheartedly believe that if you want to work with quality, you have to offer quality and you have to be the kindest person possible. It won't always work. You have to be stern. Sometimes you're going to lose your shit. It happens. But for me, like one of those things is I want to pay people more. I want to be able to pay people even if it's out of my own pocket. Even if I can't afford it. I want to pay them. Even if it's a small stipend just for gas money right now with my own productions, right? Since I'm, it's not a big enough scale. It's not union rate. Nothing like that. I can't pay them. And I'll be front with them. I'll be like, I can't pay you for this. But maybe I send you 50 bucks. Can I afford that? No, I can't afford that. I ain't got no fucking money. But will I? Yeah. Because it shows to them that I care. Even if I, ca I can't do what I want. I can't pay them the rate I would like to pay people if they worked on my film. I believe people deserve to get paid what they work with. And they deserve to be respected. I don't think a film set should be 12 hours. I think at maximum, at fucking maximum, it should be 10 hours. But I think at ideal, it should be 8. And it's difficult. It is easier said than done. It is quite difficult. But you just have to plan. You just have to sacrifice and compromise. You have to understand not everything you have on paper is as important. And if the set is a gruel and people aren't getting sleep and aren't quality, it doesn't matter how smart things are planned out. Because then they're not performing as sharp and they're not having as good of a time. And that will translate in the end product. So to me, fast and efficient with quality is where it matters, through and through. It really does. Okay. So now where do we go from here? What do we do? Well, when I was directing... Oh, God, I keep getting sidelined. Playing Elden Ring, relaxing. I asked my friend C's because I was really contemplating how can I emotionally convey how devastating it is to lose a best friend. If we're only establishing this friend and we're only establishing... Yeah, there's a spoiler there, but they've only been friends... They've been friends for life. How do you establish that in two or so minutes and have them die in that same time frame? That's hard it's hard to make them so enjoyable and like people i want people to feel the loss that the character feels so obviously they won't feel it as much as if they were with that character for minutes or hours on end sure but something and i think we did a pretty good job but i tried to conceptualize loss grief in an immediate flesh how do we present that to make it believable how can i direct that it's hard directing is not be more aggressive be less aggressive, be more energetic, be less energetic. That's not how you direct. Directing is understanding people and allowing the actors to have their artistic spin on something to convey a character. Sure, sometimes it's directly, hey, all right, you're going to walk here and then a bullet comes through and hits you on the hip or whatever, right? Sometimes it is that. 
The actor doesn't know that. The actor knows it from the screenplay. They know, oh, this character gets shot. My character gets shot. They don't know what it looks like. They might have it in their head. They don't know the location. They don't know the camera placement. They don't know the lighting. They don't know where the squib is going to be placed. The squib is an automated device that uh, sometimes filled with blood packets, sometimes dust, whatever. It's Sense Saving Private Ryan has been a remote-controlled radio frequency device that is to explode or can be manually detonated. Small, very small, non-lethal explosive packet that will help practically show the effect of being stabbed or shot or damaged physically. Okay. Anyway, so if you place a squib on your hip, you know. Okay, so it might, in the screenplay it might say uh, character A gets shot by a rifle in the hip. They're okay, but they fall over. Okay, that's fine. And that tells a story that gets the, the... But it doesn't have the directions. It doesn't have the blocking. It doesn't have the location. It might have a general location, a warehouse. But it isn't until the location scout, the tech, the crew, the director is there, and then they can say, okay, well, lighting and angle and sound and all this works at this direction. Actor will cross this way. They'll get hit on this hip. Continuity, we can cut into this close-up. All these things, right? There's so much more technical things at play, right? With the angles and the types of shots that are at play, how they cut into one another, right? How they jump on the editing timeline to make it more continuous and flow better and have better pacing. Um, how the lighting and the sound will differentiate. All these other components, right? The actor doesn't know that going in. The actor knows of the story beat, might know exactly how they want to portray it and so then it's a communication it's a dialogue between the director and the rule is and i do believe in this rule no one else is supposed to talk or tell or direct if you will the actor other than the director unless the director gives explicit permission to somebody else for the meantime which really doesn't happen or obviously if there's a co-director scenario obviously the co-director has authority there um so yeah that's part of it you know, in a more traditional sense, some people would say, like, the cinematographer can't even tell the actor, oh, can you move over here? They need to ask the director to... I don't know. I I understand that as a courtesy thing to respect the director and their workspace and to respect the actor. I do believe that. If that's how the actors and the directors find it to be most respectful, to go through that chain of command, I, I get that. But honestly, on my sets, as long as the actors are comfortable with it and as long as I trust the DP, I don't mind. Because it saves time. If they need the actor to move over there because that's just the best framing that we've already figured out and I'm busy figuring something out over here and the cinematographer just needs the actor to stand in, in and we don't have stand-ins or something or, or just is telling the actor this is where we're going to be now. It's just a foot over to the left, whatever. I don't need the cinematographer leaving their post, walking over to me, interrupting what I'm trying to figure out, and ask me if I can then leave what I'm doing to go ask the actor to do that. That's ridiculous. So unless it's something the actor prefers, or unless it's I'm working with people whom I don't think, who I think would try to take control of the set too much, then I'd implement that rule, but only then. And that's also part of it. There are people who try to either unknowingly or knowingly take over the film. Sometimes 
they're trying it's not like malintention it's just they may not believe in the vision they may not trust the director and they think they have final say it could be any crew any position the the higher the influence of the position right the more responsibility you have the easier it is for them to slip into that role a dp a producer executive producer a first ad dp's director of photography we already talked about producer first ad is a first assistant director they're like the captain they're like the drill sergeant on set they are an extension of the director and they're to help the fluidity and the coordination of the on-set logistics they're the ones that call action usually or at least call setup they're the one watching the time and coordinating with the producers to make sure everything's on budget they're the ones in the director's ears saying okay we got to get this shot down so we can move on they're the ones coordinating Team B to go set up in the next location. Because when you're on set, the director's focus should be tunnel vision to the service of the actors. And, of course, keeping in mind the overall story. But everything else is led up to the moment when you're on set to then just focus on your actors. Make sure you get the coverage you need and make sure you get the performance you need. Everything else is great and it matters. But it comes second to those two things. Get the coverage so you have enough to work with in the editing room so you can finish your story and get the actors to perform and get them comfortable. Focus on them. It's their time to shine and it's your time to work with them. You only have so many hours and so many days in those hours, uh, in, that, in those weeks, if possible, to work with them. And that's it. That's all you get. You don't get to come back and shoot it. You might have reshoot days scheduled, but they may not line up. Or even if they do, that's even then, that's still a finite amount of days. So that's it. So if you get to the editing room and all the performances are bad or the continuity is off or you don't have that shot that you need to make it make sense, then you're fucked. You just have to figure something else out. You have to recut it and restructure it. It's hard. It is not easy, nor is it fun. It is what it is, though. Such is life. Such is life. It's stressful. I asked my buddy C's, I was like, what is it like? To, what would, how would you react if, you, if I got stabbed in front of you, if I died? I just wanted a point of reference. I wanted to get it from somebody who's not in film and see what they would think. And I thought he was going to send a video or a picture or just kind of tell me. <laughs> he reenacted it. It was hilarious. It's one of the funniest moments. And it was refreshing. I needed that. I was so in the weeds. I was so stressed about this movie. I'm like, all right. To everyone else, this is fun. This isn't as stressful. <laughs> it was hilarious. I, I have the video somewhere. I'd have to... I, I got to see if I can find it just for my own sake. It was so funny. It helped. It gave me some context. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, when I was shooting, I just want to get home and play Elden Ring and chill. You know, plan and think out the movie, but I, I thought it out to a, a T. And filming is one of those things where, you know, the, the, the age-old joke, God's favorite joke is making a plan. Well, that couldn't be truer said than with film. Because that is the case. You will make a plan, you'll plan it out, you'll structure it, you'll schedule it, all this, boom, boom, bam, bada-bing, bada-boom. All that's in place. And it still will not go according to plan. It's almost like it's not supposed to. It doesn't make sense.
So yeah. It's just a balancing of those things. And one of the things that I meant to hit on earlier is when you're directing, everybody, even if they don't want to be a director, they don't truly want to have that responsibility, that pressure, and that thought that they have to put into it. But everybody thinks they can direct when they are watching the director direct. Now, this is a natural phenomenon because you're watching the mistakes that someone else makes. Even if there's not many mistakes, and even if overall it's all still good and they may still know more than you, you will still see some mistakes that they make that they won't have time to address or they may not see because they're so focused on something else. It just happens. I made a bunch of mistakes while directing A Way Out. I'm not going to say I didn't. I'm not perfect. I'm not the greatest director ever. I had a lot of mistakes. I had a lot of moments in hindsight and while I was directing. But overall, I did a pretty good job considering. I'm not going to say I didn't. And I felt the pressure. I felt the pressure and the negativity from my peers so much throughout those days of shooting. It weighed on me more than I thought it would. Because in pre-production, we planned everything with the inch of life, and I made sure everyone had a time and opportunity to voice their grievances, their opinions. Oh, do you, do you like this? You know, within the confines of what it is. I mean, obviously, once the screenplay was locked in, we had to run with that. It's not like, oh, I don't like this story. Well, you know, tough shit. Right, but I mean like in the fine details, okay, of like, oh, do you think, you know, when Ali says this, does this mean anything to you guys, or, you know what I mean? I really tried to make sure all of them had a voice, because I know what it's like. I've worked on other film sets before where I'm pushed and relegated to nothing, to obscurity. Even if I'm doing something important, I'm pushed so far in the corner that I'm looked cra I look at, you know, people look at me crazy if I have a suggestion. And I didn't want my film set to be like that. I wanted people to feel like they could at least voice their opinion. And I told them straight up. I said, sometimes, even if you have a good idea, hell, you might have a better idea than me. I kept telling my crew and cast this. I said, often than not, you're going to come up with an idea better than I will. The only difference is, I was only given a set amount of time to come up with these ideas before we were here. You're able to come up with these ideas while you're seeing everything else go on, Right? You know, and maybe some in pre, but I had to come up with the ideas and structure the blocking a lot of it before we were even there shooting. They may come up with the ideas as they're watching a shoot or a little bit beforehand, sure. So I said, there'll be times where you will have a better idea that would work better, sure. But it's not fully figured out. Logistics-wise, it just hasn't had the time to be figured out. There wasn't the coordination, the blocking, the rehearsal. There wasn't coordination with how the cinematography of it would look or if the sound would work here or there at that angle, right? All these other elements and these factors, does it make sense in scene six compared to scene two, whatever the case may be, right? So yeah, you might bring up a better point. You might have something more interesting. It might look cooler. But it doesn't have all this other thought and planning. So that's why during pre-production I said, if you have a better idea that you think could be implemented, let's do it now. Because otherwise, God hold your tongue. Because fucking, we won't be able to get around to it by the time we're shooting. We just won't. Maybe if we have extra time and money. But we have to shoot what we all agree upon and lock in. And that's exactly what we did. We got all the coverage, all the shots, all the looks that we initially wanted that we all decided and agreed upon time and time again but while we were on set it's like my crew forgot that they were part of that process sure they weren't a part of everything they didn't do the blocking i wrote out the blocking 
They're not supposed to. That's not their job. That's the director's job. So there's no point where they should have any influence on the block. I'm not a type of director that like allows everybody to do everything. But I wanted when people had an idea or a concept or something that they thought could help the film, whether in production efficiency or just in terms of telling the story better or more interestingly, I wanted them to at least voice their thoughts and then see if we could figure it out. Because you never know. The screenwriter, the director, everybody who's currently holding the creative thing in lock and key and ready to push it forward, they have final say, they have the ultimate you know, control, and they have to push their vision to a finish line. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that come up along the way where someone's like, oh yeah, what if we just try this? And you're like, shit, actually, that's a good idea. I never thought of it like that. That's the collaborative process. That's what makes a production better. So I wanted to encourage that. Not discourage it. However, even when I did that, there were people who waited too long to voice their opinion, and they were voicing their opinion and voicing their grievances to each other. But I have good hearing. You know, I have autism super hearing, so I could hear them. It's not like they were that quiet. I could feel the energy. I could see the reactions. I can hear their begrudging and groaning. You know? I could sense it. The negativity crept in and crushed me. After the first day, going into the second day, I was like, oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. It was so brutal. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I could do this. The two most positive beacons of energy and, and, and excitement were my actors. We rehearsed, we were excited, and I was like, okay, I just got to focus on them. The crew has no idea that we got this one locked. Now, to be fair, the crew was like frustrated and confused and upset at times because I was still figuring out the blocking and rehearsing and the practicality of everything. And they were trying to butt in, what if we switch this angle? And there were times I'm like, no, we can't do that. We don't have the time, energy, or it just doesn't work. And one of the shots I compromised and we flipped the entire angle of something and I hated it. I didn't agree with it then. I said, no, this is, I don't think, this isn't necessary. We already have it right here and it works fine. And they're like, yeah, but it doesn't, da, da, da. And I was so burdened and so aware of all these other things that we had to get in that was way more important than just some setup establishing shot that I caved, I compromised. And sometimes you will, it's okay. And that I shouldn't have, but in the end it was fine because they didn't really push and try to flip anything else. But my DP and my first AD, which I felt kind of weird for them to both kind of push against me in the last minute as we're setting up for the shot to say, let's just flip this entire fucking angle, which changes all of the blocking in my mind. Which, mind you, I only had a couple hours of blocking to begin with that I had to plan. I didn't have days. Unlike the second scene that we were shooting, I weeks before I did the blocking rehearsal and we were locked in and nothing was changing that. It was actually, it was so well rehearsed and acted and my, my actors did such a good job that by the second take, they got it down perfect. So it was then just figuring out camera and lighting and sound and making sure they were comfy with everything we figured out. That was it. So it was kind of reversed. Whereas this time, it was all of us figuring out how to piece together like a fucked up Jenga. So yeah, I was figuring stuff out and I was balancing stuff. I wanted to make sure people were safe. I wanted to get our extras home on time. I was very considerate about the traffic for our actors that they had to drive through to get home. So I didn't want them driving at the dead of night because I'm a narcoleptic and I've been sent home 
at midnight or 1 a.m., and I didn't want them to be driving at that time. You know, so it's just things like that. Uh, it was a lot to balance, and people didn't realize that while I was on set. Why should they? Um, all in all, I think we pulled it off. I didn't do as good at directing on the opening night. I was too concerned with these bigger things that were at play. The car, the crash pad, the coordination of such, all these other things. But we got some of the main dialogue from the villain down perfect so he didn't have to come back. And we did decide to do reshoots there because of two reasons. One, because of the lighting and the camera angle. And the lens hood kind of fell into frame the entire time. Oh well. Uh, so the shots were a little little off. Just didn't look quite good. But then also the acting was okay. It was passable, but it was a little stiff. So honestly, and the directing too, of course. So going back and doing it again there. And that's what we spent our one reshoot day on, the opening sequence. And just the opening with the two main characters talking before shit goes down. So we didn't need the extras, we didn't need the car, we didn't need the crash pad, we didn't need the main villain, we just needed them to, and that's all we shot. And it was great. And the first time we shot it, it was cold. You know, it was the end of spring, or the end of fall, winter-ish, you know, kind of transitioning to spring. The next week, it was warm. Shorts weather. It was insane. Same difference. Same location, just a week later. It was cool. But during that, I felt immense pressure. And after that first day, I was beat. I was like, man, these people hate me. And I knew it wasn't as good as it could have been. We ran over time. We had a, a little kerfuffle for a minute, an hour, actually, where we thought we lost all the audio. We didn't. It was just a glitch, thank the Lord. But that was scary. So all these things. Everything that could have gone wrong, other than like dire injuries, thank God that didn't happen, but a lot of stuff went wrong and delayed us significantly. And I was kind of in a disarray because we had lunch, or we had dinner first. I wanted everyone to eat first because I knew as things were starting to get going, as we had all these elements, we wouldn't have, having an hour-long lunch break, or dinner break, I mean, would have broken the momentum. So I'm like, let's eat now. So everyone's on a full belly. Two hours of setting up and eating. And I allowed that because I also knew the food coma would kick in. So I wanted people to get through that. And thankfully they did. There was a little bit of a food coma hangover in the starting of the shooting. So one, we had to wait for it to get dark. It actually had to be dark. So we had no reason to start. And two, the estimates of time for it to actually become dark. Because it was the week the seasons were you know, functionally changing is our entire estimate for when it was supposed to be dark was way off. We got there at 5.30. 30 minutes to kind of prep, get food in order, and eat. And so by 6.15, everyone would be done with their main food because usually you give 30 minutes for, if it's just a half day, you could give 30-minute lunch or dinner. It's called lunch, but it's dinner. Um, you know... And then it wouldn't be till 7 till sun goes down. I think it was. And then from 7 to 11, we'd shoot. Sun didn't go down till 8. We had a whole extra hour. Luckily, that gave me time to really figure out how to block and coordinate stuff. But it also made our momentum was drastically shifted. All this hype and energy and everybody on set ready to go. And we were delayed by an entire hour just because the sun fucking took its time right things like that 
Things we couldn't have predicted or prepared for. So we used the time wisely. We set up. We got things ready. Everyone got to eat and digest their food. And we got to block. So, oh no, it could have been worse. But it was still frustrating. Because it delayed us by an entire hour. Let alone the near hour pause it took to figure out our sound card issue. It just pushed us over. So we didn't spend more time there than we needed to because I was like, oh, we need this one extra shot. I'm sorry, I'm going to make you guys stay longer. No, we did it because things just happened. And you're not going to leave once you have all that coordinated just because. If you can, stretch it another hour. And I made sure. I talked to all one. I'm like, are you guys truly okay if we stay an extra hour? Because if not, we'll cut our losses and I'll let you guys go. I, th- I was trying to be as respectful to everyone's time because they weren't being paid and they were doing the best they could with what they had. And they were all in it. They were all games. So to me, at the end, if my actors are like, yeah, no, let's keep going. We're having a blast. That meant the world to me. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> my crew would leave right this second. I mean, they want to get this done. They care about filmmaking, but they also are tired and they know better. So <laughs> they'd be out. So <laughs> it's a balancing act. And their neg- my crew's negativity weighed on me too much. I, lo- I allowed it to press into my psyche more than I should have. But it is what it is. I just felt worse about it more. I was excited. I was hyped. I was getting energetic. The rehearsals were going good. Everything was going good. I knew shit was going to be difficult. I was stressed out of my fucking mind. Nothing. If you ask any of my friends or family during this time period, they're like, yeah, he wasn't talking or thinking about anything else except directing this movie. And that was true. But regardless of all that, even though I was actually having a great time and things were working out and we were getting the ball rolling and everything was clicking and I'm like, yeah, I, this is second nature to me. I know how to be a director. I've been doing this for years with uh, all kinds of people. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm getting better, but I was comfy. I was in my zone, but that, that way in that... Because I respect my peers. I respect everyone I was working with. They're all really good at what they do. They know what they're doing too. So if they're doubting me, I'm like, fuck, maybe I'm doing something wrong. I started becoming paranoid. I was like, am I pissing them off? Am I doing something that they don't like? I wasn't trying to seek approval or validation. I was just trying not to burn bridges or make them frustrated. But honestly, I think it was more so just the story didn't captivate them as much. The circumstances, the time, there were so many other things. And you never know what's going on in a person's personal life that could be affecting their mood. So I had to brush it off and let it go and just push forward. I don't know if they look at that film as fondly. Obviously, they didn't direct it. It wasn't their biggest thing. Two of them went on to make senior thesis films, so that's now their biggest, you know, thing. And they're still in post of that. So they're preoccupied. I get it. But I know for a fact that that experience helped them, helped shape, helped polish, helped teach them things they wouldn't have known otherwise. And it for sure helped me. It helped me with my comfort and my directing abilities. It was the most people I've had to direct from crew and cast by a metric fuck time. I mean, before that, I think the biggest production I directed on my own was my own film that I brought to fruition. And it was like four or five crew and two actors, three actors. This was five actors, two or three extras, eight main crew, and a couple extra help crew hands helping on certain days three locations and and it was two thousand dollars and we actually saved money so we actually got to refund a lot of money to our crew members who invested who put money in so that was good i think we all 
I mean, we saved $300, so I think we all evenly got that endorsed back to us, or it was proportional to who put what in. Our producer was phenomenal. Charles did it. Everyone was. Everyone was at the top of their game and did an incredible job. And it really came to fruition. So please check out A Way Out. Check out Behind the Scenes so you see what I'm talking about. Because after me talking about it this long, you have... Once you see it, you're like, oh yeah, that was good. That was cool. You have no idea how much work went into it. <laughs> Just to get a six and a half minute film to look and, and play decently. And the stress of being a director... Is it's just like that, but I love it. I love that pressure cooker. It's a rush. It's insane, and it's scary. And I almost die every time I do it. My, I almost go into a cardiac arrest. I think every time I, my hair grays, and I think I'm gonna die, figuring it out. Cause I don't. Cause when you're directing, you don't actually know if you'll ever get a chance to do it again. I don't know why. Like if you've done it enough, like I have, you know you'll figure it out. But like down you're kind of afraid you're like this might be the last chance who knows i might die tomorrow or you know on a less extreme dramatic notion i may not just get this chance again so i gotta make it count and you only have a finite amount of time and resources and you're balancing everybody's emotional state mental well-being safety as well as your own as well as bringing everything together to make the picture that you're intending to finish it is a very stressful and difficult job. And there are directors who are terrible at it. There are directors who are new. Um, there are people who, you know, actors have should have some creative freedom. They should have some say. It should be a dialogue, not a demand. You know, and some actors like to be directed in certain ways as opposed to others. But, like, directing isn't just running around, okay, you move this light over here. And you move this camera here. Okay, we're going to set up right there. It kind of is. It's like, okay, we're setting up for shot ta uh, scene 3A, shot 11. Uh, you know, and you talk to your DP. Okay, we good on this? Are you still thinking? You know, you make sure. Okay, we're good. We're going to do medium wide angle. Let's do the 50 uh, millimeter and... Or 55 or whatever. And then I think we shot it on a 55 millimeter for most of it. It was just kind of a nice even for the landscape. Anyway, and then we, you know, get, okay, I go talk to my actors. All right, so we're good. Lines are good. By then, they should be off book. They should know their lines, hopefully. Right, so it's more like, you comfy with this? And I like to retroscript. I like to do some stuff where it's like, you know, follow the core of the, you know, some of these lines you got to say because they're just integral to the story and just, but follow the essence of this. If it doesn't sound natural, if it doesn't feel right, because when you write it, it's great and it could be great, but like you're writing it from your perspective on how you talk or how you think the dialogue goes down. But when the actor says it, it may not fit. If they're saying it the way you directly wrote it, it may not work. But if you allow them to say essentially the same thing in their own words, it may come out beautifully and still get the point across. It's a balancing of that compromise. The directors that control too much. The directors that are taught on the auteur method who think that controlling every fine detail is the way you direct, I think are misguided. And I think ultimately hurt the production and the quality of their work. Not only is it not fun to work with them, because you take one step to the left and they're like, can you move a centimeter to the right? And I'm like, what? Dog, think of the bigger picture here. Do you have the coverage you need? Does this make sense? Is this story the way you need it to be? 
No one cares if I'm standing a little left of the frame or a little right. They can't even tell from this distance. Honestly, the focal length of this lens, you will not be able to tell the difference if I'm one centimeter to the left or right at this range, right? Like, shit like that doesn't matter at the end of the day. Unless you're doing, like, a time jumping and you're doing it for continuity, but that's a script supervisor's job to manage continuity between cuts and takes and frames and all that. That's not the director's job. So the director's job, right, to guide everybody, to collaborate, and to get the story and the, the message across. And I feel like directors get caught up in the weeds. They want to take over the camera. They want to pick up a camera and set it up because, oh, they have a camera on their own. They have a nicer camera, and they're able to move it around, and they like being a DP. It's like, yeah, but you're not a DP. You're a director. Let the director of photography do the camera stuff. Let the camera op- operate the camera. Let everybody do their role. They specialize in it. They know what they're doing. They should have their voice, their input there. You know? You know, if something's off and you're like, ah, that angle doesn't seem right. The director should have input, sure, but it shouldn't be they take over. As a director, I don't think, unless you have explicit permission, consent from the actors, you don't touch them. You don't point, I mean, you could point and gesture, you know, hey, can you move over right here, this is the spot, you could put some spike tape down to help them. If that helps the actors with their mark and with the framing, of course, because the actors need to know where to navigate in the space. I've acted before, many times, in different productions, in different scales, on stage and in film. It's difficult. It's difficult. It's not just memorizing your lines or getting the emotions right and thinking about the person you're acting with and getting all that right. That's what you're mainly focused on, but it's also, where do you go? It's awkward. You got cameras and lights and a boom mic and all these things. It's not free-flowing. It's not natural. It isn't. Everything's manufactured to look a certain way, so it's not natural. You might walk this far, but if you walk that far, all of a sudden you're out of frame because they're doing a tight-up on you, and, you know, you might have to stand perfectly still for an extreme close-up, and you don't know because you can't see the camera. Uh, if it's a big enough production, maybe they have some monitors flipped so you can see it, sort of, but you can't really. you got to focus on what's in front of you, if it's an actor or if it's just getting your choreography down or whatever, right? So the director's there to guide them. So some actors need that. Some actors, hey, you know, do I stand here or here? And, you know, actors communicate. They'll be like, hey, uh, where do I go? What do you need now? As an actor, and, and as from what I've heard, what I've read, what I've talked about with some of my actors, if a director is so focused on the technical and directing their crew around, the crew specializes in what they do, as do the actors. Everyone's there and bringing their A-game, knows what they're supposed to do. But it's the actors that need more guidance, not the crew. If the director's too concerned about the camera, the lighting, if they're fixing this light over here, if they're helping the diffusers, if they're telling the boom pole to stand here, if they're doing all this shit, Okay, maybe it's necessary for certain sequences, but for the most part, that's just a waste of time. Your actors are standing there like, uh, so you want me to go from this part? What kind of emotion are we doing here? Or or even if they know how they're going to portray it, like, okay, do I stand here? Uh, what What's the camera see right now? Talk to them. Communicate with them. That's what I tried to focus on, you know. I made sure my crew was ready to go. I made sure all the technical elements were figured out, especially if there's choreography, like the camera was moving, boom was moving. Made sure we were comfy with that so the crew members are safe and so the equipment is safe. And then, you know, the actors. Sometimes. Or the other way around. It just depends. 
So sometimes you need to communicate to both of them so everyone's on the same page, right? Directors are the great communicators. They're supposed to bridge these gaps. But I've been an actor, uh, and I've acted on sets with less experienced directors who are just so focused. They'll go take the camera, and they'll set it up way off in the distance, and you're like, what the fuck? And you're not relating to the director. You're just kind of there, just like, okay, let me just get through these lines. So, well, all right, director, what do I say? And you, you do your best. You try your best, but you're like, you're not motivated. With my actors, we became friends. We chatted. Oftentimes, my crew had to find me. I was off in the distance set at the mark where my actors were, going over, making sure they were comfortable. Because I trusted my crew. I knew they knew what they were doing. They had months of prep. And if they didn't, they would hopefully tell me or we'd figure it out in the next take. But with my actors, I, they're coming into the location, they're coming into the set. They don't know or need to know how the boom op or the camera operates. And they don't need to know how it motions through time. And a more experienced actor would just be more comfortable with these elements and know how to hold their own. But I was mix working with a mixture of both. So it was an incredible experience. I learned a lot. I, I was reminded that I love directing no matter how stressful and complicated it may be. And I'm, I'm so excited to finish my next screenplay and get back to the director's chair. Uh, it takes time. It takes a lot of energy. It's exhausting. And when you have to finance and write your own film and direct it, it's so much more work. There is less pressure with a way out because I didn't write it. I was interpreting the writing through my head. That added a lot. Like at first I was upset. I'm like, eh, I wish I had some writing control. And I helped with some rewrites and kind of... The actors also had their points and what made them feel comfortable, say. So we went with some of that, too. It wasn't always just what the page was. But essentially, I mean, it was what Gino wrote. And it was great writing, but it was just one of those things where it was so much more relieving to direct something else someone wrote. It's not all on me. If I write the script and find, finance the film and direct it, that's fine. That's perfectly acceptable. It's just the more pressure on me. If I fuck up, I, I can't be like, well, I try to interpret it. And it wasn't like, even if a way out was bad, I wasn't going to be like, well, it was the writer's fault. No, it was my fault. I'll take responsibility when and where I fuck up. But if someone's like, the writing wasn't as strong, why'd you write it this way? I could say, well, we try to work it this way. It's still, I don't think it's fair. I mean, I, I'd say, well, I didn't write it, but I did help edit it. And I'll be honest, I think this and that, you know, to have some distance from it so I don't have the full blame for something I wasn't a part of, but I still do have blame. It, it doesn't matter if you're a sound mixer, if you're art PA. If someone's asking you about the film that you were a part of, you were a part of it. You had some voice, you had some connection, and you had some influence on the production. You should clarify, like, hey, I didn't write it. I was just doing makeup. Okay, well, then that person would be like, all right, well, obviously you didn't write it. But, like, depending on your role, you still have a part. And you have to take ownership of that. Even if the movie's bad, it sucks. Even if the movie doesn't work out. I've worked on movies that don't work out. I have movies of my own that aren't great. I'm proud of them, though. Because I, I was able to do it. Something people don't realize is, regardless of how good a movie is, the act of doing it is so much harder than people realize. Writing it, financing it, you know, producing it, getting it all ready, prepping it, and then shooting it and then finding time to edit it, cut it all together, and then pu publish it to the world for anybody to give their feedback. It's difficult. It takes time, money, energy, a lot of life force, and it's kind of just an act of what you know with balancing all these elements. That's, that's what filmmaking is.
So I love directing. It's one of my passions. I've always loved doing it. And it's not because I'm a control freak. Um, hopefully throughout this podcast, this has made sense to you that I'm not a control freak. I just want to tell stories. And I know I have a vision and I know how I want to communicate it with people and I want everyone to have a good time while I do it. Directors have to be bold. Sometimes you will be an asshole. You can't always compromise. Sometimes you say, no, 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 we're doing it this way. And I can't tell you how many times I had to do that in numerous films, including Way Out. I was like, no, we're not doing that. Sorry. We don't have the time or money or energy or, honestly, that, sorry, that just doesn't work out. It's not what I envision. I'm sorry. You know. Sometimes you just have to take control. You can't let other people influence just because you're trying to be the nice guy. You could be nice. You could be, it's always, you're always nice and respectful, but you're not, you can't be a pushover either. You could be nice and respectful, but still stern and hold true to your vision. Make compromises, collaborate. Don't be an asshole where you're like, no, 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 it's only my vision. You have to say exactly what I say. If I move the camera here, you know, that's that totalitarian authoritarianism bullshit. No one likes that. Be collaborative, be flexible. Okay, hey, no, that's actually a pretty good idea. Well, let's change it up a little bit because that actually makes more sense. You know, shit like that. But then when someone's like says something way out of the line, you're like, no, no, we're going to stick to this because this is what we wrote down. This is what works. We know that we could pull this off. It's a compromise. Guillermo de Toro said it best. It's a, you have to be the most sympathetic person but also the most stern. You have to know when to fight like hell to keep your idea, whether it's from people, because people are trying to take over your concept. They love it, or they think they have a better idea on it, but they don't, because if they did, they'd be directing it. Simple as that. If you were given the opportunity or the position or the power or the influence and the responsibility of all of this awesome power to bring fruition to a film, then you have to execute that responsibility with the most respect for yourself, for your peers, and for the artistry itself. And that is a combination of taking care of yourself and everyone on set and the vision that you have. So that was probably the longest segment. Directing is difficult. It's fun. It's exciting. It's stressful. It's all those things wrapped up in one. That's what I'm most passionate about. It's what I have the most experience in. But every role is important. Being a DP, setting up your shots, making sure everything looks great. You're the window into this world. The set design allows the world to live. The CGI and VFX aids that world in the suspense or disbelief in the ability. The story and the characters and the way they're written from the screenwriter and everyone else who had help in the writing process is what makes it connect to the human experience. The sound design is what elevates the atmospheric level and allows us to hear. Activates another level of our sensory senses and, and sensory abilities that allows us to be a part of this world. Every aspect, every component is crucial. And everyone has their own artistry and their way of telling it. Unique ways of being smart and, and showing things differently. Directing is odd because it's one of the most elusive ones to also like pinpoint and understand why it's good. The whole film is good. Well, yeah, Spielberg's great. Well, why is he great? How? What does he do? How can we pinpoint exactly what he's doing? Is it the blocking? Is it the writing? Well, if someone else wrote it, well, then how is it that? 
Well, it's beautifully shot. Well, there's a DP. So is that him? Or Well, now, obviously, the director has kind of final say and influence on every component, right? So, yeah, you can give some credit because it all came together like that. And when over the years and consistently it's shown to be that effective and that good, then you know there's something right. Because if that director's attached, then everything is firing in all cylinders, right? So it's evident that Spielberg is one of the best at his craft. But why? Well, in my personal opinion, and by many others, it's because he understands humans more than almost any other director. He understands how to convey wonder, bewilderment, the emotional human spectral experience in two hours or so. He knows how to get that and let audience feel. That's the hardest thing. Because, as I've explained, the technicality of everything involved is so bearing. Oh, can we get our shots? Can we get our coverage? Well, does any of that matter if when people are watching it, they don't care or they don't feel? Maybe it still does. Maybe it's just you're showing off the technical improvements of your filmmaking, and that's fine. There are movies that are technically better made, but there are movies that are technically worse made but are more impactful to people. It's a balancing act. The best films are not only technically beautiful, but they're impactful as well. And movies are subjective. It's art. Some people will love this movie for this reason, and some people will hate it. That's also part of it, sure. But I think it's universal to say almost everyone loves a Spielberg production, a Spielberg film of some kind. It speaks to them. Because he, as a director, understands what is most important. Beyond the story, beyond the characters, beyond treating his crew right, obviously in the moment that is the most important while he's there. But what's the most important overall objective when he's making a film? His audience. How they think, how they feel, and how they are treated. We are crafting everything frame by frame. Don't think for a minute we can't craft how you will emotionally respond, or we can at least approximate and try to get at the heart of whatever it is and make you emotionally respond in some way. When we want to scare you, we will scare you. When we want to make you laugh, we will make you laugh. When we want to make you think, we will make you think. We can do that with film and television. But when we do that, are we respecting you as a person, as an audience member? Because if we're not, then fuck all and leave our project to dust. That's I, I personally believe in that. This segment, I'm going to talk more about the philosophy of making films, the language of cinema. Okay, I talked about directing. I'm not going to go into every specific crew role. Right. First part, the generalization, some of the roles, some of the like the grand scale of how complex it is to put a film together. The last two segments were directing, my personal favorite part of filmmaking and my experiences and some of the things I've learned from it and specifically pinging it to my biggest directorial experience with A Way Out. Now I want to talk about film, uh, cinema, as a language. Because it is a language. One that people don't fully understand is a language because they don't need to. If you are not a filmmaker or a television maker, guess what? You don't need to understand that film is a language. You don't need to understand the details of how to communicate in that language. All you need to do is to reap the benefits of that language being spoken to you when and where you go to pursue that. 
when you go to a movie theater, when you go watch a film on streaming, when you watch a movie on YouTube, there are things in place that we do and that we spend so much time and energy on, either subconsciously or consciously, that are affecting your ability to enjoy or to understand what is being said. At the end of the day, it's all storytelling, yes. Storytelling is one of the most important things in the history of mankind. It informs, it entertains, it delights, it allows us to think, it allows to stir debate, and it allows a, vo a force of change in the world for the better. Storytelling is crucial to everything. That being said, you can have a good story, but what, what's the difference between a well-written book and a good screenplay, and a good and, and more so, there's a difference between a phenomenally written screenplay and a terribly executed film. You could write the best screenplay ever, but at the end of the day, once you make it into a movie, it could be a piece of shit film. There are so many variables along the way, as a, hopefully in the general breakdown I explain the scale and the complexity of everything, that things can break down. It may not be the individual's fault. Right? It may just be the elements that be. It may just be poor timing. It could be a myriad of things. They could be happy accidents too. Right? There are plenty of those as well. Things that weren't supposed to be that happened that actually turned out for the better. But uh, when we take a break from the technical and we look at films on a philosophical level, why is it when we watch a movie we can understand the sequences of what's going on? Without it always explicitly telling us where we are in time or space. How does a film decide what information is important to give at what time and why? Right? All these things. Now, this isn't a film criticism or analy analytical uh, uh, critique film class sort of thing. But these are things you need to think of when you're a filmmaker. And honestly, if you're an audience, I think if you, if you understand these things and think about them, you can fine-tune your expectations or what you want out of a film because films are great stories. Good films or films that you enjoy can radically change your views. They can open up new perspectives. They can teach you something they never knew. They can make you feel in ways you haven't felt before or that you haven't felt in a long time. They can inspire you. They can make you think differently. They're incredible. But you have to fine-tune and allow yourself to experience those things. And we got our comfort foods, we got our comfort movies, we got our shows that we'll go to all the time, sure. But we have to broaden our horizon. And so this is equally important to you as a viewer who isn't a filmmaker or a television creator or whatever, who, who isn't in the seat of the artist trying to make something for the audience, but is if you're just an audience member, it's important to understand these things too, because once you do, you can fine-tune what you expect from a movie. It always frustrates me when people just say, yeah, well, I went to the movie. It was whatever. I just, you know, had to get out of the house, had to distract myself. There are movies that are designed to distract you. Sure. And there are movies that aren't as good. So maybe that's all they do. But film, cinema, right? The artistic side of films can change you. Radically change you. And it's partially the filmmaker's job to make a good film that can hit in that area that might be able to do that, sure, they have to deliver the payload, if you will, but you have to be the targeted destination. 
It takes two to tango. It's a communication thing once again. It's just a different form of communication because it's disconnected. It's not a live response. See, the difference with video games and film, and the reason why I think a lot of people think video games are better than film is because video games have direct player input. You, as an audience, have direct control over a set amount of parameters or variables at play. Whereas with a film, you just watch what is preset. And some people don't like just being in the driver's seat. Or, or I'm sorry, being in the passenger seat, watching the drive. They like to drive, right? They like that control. I think you can like both. I think the art of film is somebody is able to interpret a story and tell it to you in a way that is condensed and interesting and dynamic in a way you've never experienced. And you don't have to partake in it. You don't have to have choices. You can sit back and watch and learn. And when you're just watching and listening, you are actually learning better than if you are purely engaging. In some ways. In other ways, you learn better when you're engaging. So it just depends on the material. I love video games. As you know, this podcast channel is primarily about video games. I play video games all the time. I watch movies all the time. I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a video game designer. So I can't speak on what it's like being a video game designer, but I can speak on what it's like being an artist. And video game are, uh, designers are artists. And at the end of the day, they are still also manipulating and telling you and convincing you to think, feel, or act, or behave in a set of ways. The only difference is there's more variables at play that they're allowing you to partake in. Right? It's not as focused. It can be, but it's not, usually. As soon as you offer one choice to the audience, they'll make that choice. But the biggest difference between video games and film is video games can change after their release. They can radically change their gameplay, add new elements through software patches and updates. They can fix things that we're not able to fix. If the audience or the viewers don't like this, they can change it like that. Television kind of can do that. Not really. They can kind of do it in the sense like if generally the mass doesn't think this sense of humor is funny or they don't think this character is important, maybe the TV show will take a different direction and not lean into that, right, by the next season. So there is that, you know, because it's a continuation. But they don't go back and fix the existing season. Right. The only time that, that that doesn't even happen in films with director's cuts, because director's cuts are edited at the same time the final theatrical cut's edited. So it's not like they go back and do a director's cut. The only times that's happened is honestly with George Lucas and CGI and the re-release of the trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, where he went back and he fixed some things that he would have wanted originally that couldn't have been done because of the time. So with CGI and with some other VFX. However, that's not based on it any of what the audience wanted. It's purely based on what he wanted. So it's different. Even the Snyder's Cut, right? The infamous Snyder's Cut. That was cut together at a different time. That was not... That was cut years ago before it released. It wasn't like the audience said, oh, we don't like this, we don't like that. It just happened to be that Snyder, because he left the project prematurely due to the tragic story of, her, of his daughter committing suicide... Um, he had to leave making Justice League midway through, right? And so Joss Whedon took over, fucking prick, and just didn't turn out the way Zack Snyder originally intended, right? Because he had to leave his pro... He, he was director, and he left it midway. So his directorial cut was way different than what the theatrical cut, and twice as long, too. And it was better. It was better because it actually it didn't feel as jumpy or as out of place. It was too long, 
still needed to be trimmed down. But it gives us a better idea of if he was able to stay along. I think that film would have been even better than his Snyder's Cut if he was able to stay throughout the whole project. But, but that wasn't him going back and making an edit to the movie after the critics hate, after the people didn't like the theatrical cut. This is a cut of his that maybe he worked on a little bit afterwards, but mostly was probably done during his directorial cut period. Because if you're part of a DGA, the Directors Guild Association, which a lot of these big directors are, and even if they're not, sometimes they get this in their contract. During, between the editing phases of like the fine cut and the final cut, there is a two-week period where the directors get to say and kind of cut it and assemble it their way. And it's usually a little longer and adds a little more stuff that they think is important, but isn't necessarily commercially important or as viable. But they still get this cut, so they have this creative cut, so they can, it can either be sold on deluxe or special editions, or so they can still have it for themselves, right? And for their family and friends, and that's fine. I think that's actually really smart. So they cut that together. But that's still in the editing process of the final film. That's not like years later they go back and recut the entire film, right? But with video games... You can do that, not like completely change the entire game, especially if it's a story-based game, but you could update it. Content that was missing, things that didn't make sense could be completely overhauled. Look at Cyberpunk 2077, a buggy, disjointed mess at release, even though I had an okay time with it. Now its new DLC came out recently, and it's getting praise. It's like, this is the game that it should have been. It's, it plays better, it looks better, it's got way more content. It feels like this is what they were trying to get to. They can do that. They don't have to make Cyberpunk 2077 Part 2. They don't have to make a complete sequel in an entirely new game for 10 years. Two years later after the fact, they can release something for free or for a certain price point to add to it. To add either another chapter or to fix what was wrong. With film, you don't get that privilege. So you have to respect the artist for what they have with the limited time and resources. And even films with huge budgets and a lot of time to make them, it's still limited. You still only have so many hours in a day and so many days of the week and so many weeks of the month where you're actually allowed to shoot. And these things take time. People, a two-minute scene could take three hours to shoot. The, the time in the film that you're watching is cut and edited. Or editing hundreds of hours of footage. It could be one of these things where it's like a simple, well, for example, a sequence that was, I think, 40 seconds long in Inception, the infamous hallway fight scene where they're in zero G and the hallway was spinning. Well, because Nolan's a stickler for practical effects, they actually built a motherfucking rotating hallway that was huge. And they interior decorated it. It looked like a hotel lobby with lighting fixed in it and this massive cylinder spinning thing. And they spent weeks to train their actors to do the stunts in with wire lines and all that to run on the walls. It's an incredible sequence. It's just phenomenal. It's a great film. Inception's a great film. And that sequence is fucking awesome. We're talking about a two-and-a-half-hour movie, which is, I mean, it's fine. It's a perfectly fine runtime for what the story is, right? But we're talking about a two-and-a-half-hour movie for a scene that's no longer than one minute. And setting that up was a, a, like a $20 million process or something ridiculous. Maybe not that much, but it was, it was in the millions, at least. And took them three weeks to get down. Almost a month. For 30 seconds of film. 
for 30 seconds of the end result. The actual fight scene was probably a couple minutes long, but they finally trimmed it down to 30 seconds because that's what fit in the story. That's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, even Inception, that was a $160 million movie. They built an entire rotating hallway, trained the actors, specially fixed their camera to be able to glide through a rotating cylinder hallway that is fixed to look like a hotel lobby with things, you know, glued to it to the sense where it wouldn't be rattled around, and to figure out the geometry and the g-force of everything moving, and to do it safely. While they're fighting, they're still kicking the shit out of each other, and doing stunt work is always dangerous, so they're fighting the fuck out of each other while on wires. On a rotating hallway, with a camera that's more expensive than most of your homes, moving steadily through this hallway while it's spinning. And they had to build all this from scratch and figure out the logistics and pull it off. All for 30 seconds of a two and a half hour movie. So, trust me when I say, and you know, you might say, well that's a little fucking much. And it might be. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with you. But at the end result, it was incredible. It was unlike anything we've ever seen before. Is it excessive? Yeah, but in the world of filmmaking, it's important. And for the story, it was important. I agree. Some films cost too much, and for what they're doing, it, you know, you'd think, well, couldn't this money go towards helping people? Sure, maybe. That's a bigger, more philosophical debate for another day, but I think there are other things that don't actually benefit the world as much that has way much, way more money put into it. You know... So, and everyone in their own field, in their own specialty, will say, well, this is important to the world. And it is. Film is important. It's art. It's storytelling. It employs a lot of people around the world, and it allows a lot of people to find a voice and find something they can identify with and be immersed, entertained, or escape reality. It's an important piece of our culture and of humankind, I think. Film and television. And things similar to it. But there's this subtlety, there's this subtext, there's this language in film, in storytelling, in movies that we watch that can convey and tell us things that we wouldn't fully understand if it was a different format. It's not just technical. And when it's done wrong, you can feel it's off. It doesn't have to be the technically the sharpest. It doesn't have to be the best looking camera, best lighting, the most cinematic feeling, all that. But there is a difference. There's a difference when you feel like, oh my god, this movie's so cinematic. What's the difference between watching Star Wars and watching A Way Out, right? What's the difference? Well, Star Wars is a better film, and it's a bigger budget, and there's way more to it, and it's longer. Sure, I mean, you could point out the obvious, but it's, it's a better film. I'm not comparing my film to say it's like Star Wars. I'm just giving a direct example. What's the difference? They're both films, and they're both telling stories. What's the difference in the techniques and the stuff? Well, opposed from the technology and the general technicals and the... There's a language being told. And it's a different way. Subconsciously. We assign these things to emotion of what the audience reaction. A wide angle. A wide angle lens, right? Open. Landscape. What does that mean? Well, it's more inviting. It's usually an establishing shot. It's to help give the audience a referential point of view to understand place. You have to... Un there are basic things that you have to understand going into a story. And if you don't, you're going to be... Your brain is going to be quietly trying to figure out in the background what the fuck is going on. And when it's doing that, it's taking away your time, energy, and your enjoyment... 
from everything else going on. So the most important thing to do in a movie, first and foremost, is to establish the basic facts of the story. It could be out of order, it could be a confusing story, it could be complex, but it's got to get some of the basics down. And when it doesn't, people don't enjoy it. Subconsciously, it rattles in their brain. So when you have an open wide shot, an establishing shot, let's say an exterior of a school, right? And, you know, you have to base it off of what you know, but you have to kind of, you're not going to, not everyone in the world's going to understand everything. It depends on their age, depends on their background, depends on their experience, right? But let's say I'm, I'm shooting a movie and I'm shooting it for people in America who have been through middle school, high school, or college. Okay, well, traditionally, we all know generally what a school looks like, at least a public school, maybe. Even if you haven't been to one, you've driven by one, whatever, right? So we got a shot. We got, let's say we got a crane shot. We got an overhead, uh, kind of overhead, like starting up high in the sky. Not too high, just high enough, just above, uh, just above like a, a telephone pole height, all right? So we got this wide angle, and it's slowly, you know, uh, uh, panning down, right? And just slowly establishing, okay, we're at a school. We hear the school bell ring in the distance, okay? We hear children playing outside, right? Audio is just as important as visual. It helps illustrate what's going on, and it helps give the audience contextual clues that is necessary to keep the story moving forward, right? So we, hear the, we, we, we have the camera coming down. We see the opening. We see it's a school. Okay, well, we're outside, right? We're hearing kids, maybe we're hearing basketball thuds, we're hearing the, 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 you know, the school bell go off. So we can assume it's the end of recess, right? Because this camera is now coming down into focus. And we've got a bunch of kids playing, and they're on the basketball court, okay? So we're coming down, we hear the bells, we hear the basketball, we hear the kids playing. We hear that basketball dribble kind of come to a stop, right? Bounce pretty, pretty uh, frivolously, and then just slow down, right? And it slows down, so we're, so as the camera is coming down, we see all the kids and they're leaving. The basketball comes to a stop by the time the camera comes to a stop. Why? Why would I have that basketball come to a stop when the camera stops? Natural motion, that inertia, that allows us to better immerse ourselves. Pacing, it's like music, right? And music, the beat, the cadence, the flow, if you're rapping, you da, 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 right? Whatever the case may be, there's a cadence, there's a pacing, there's a rhythm to everything in place. And that allows you to convey the, the energy of the story. You hear the basketball, you hear the feet scuffle, you hear the kids playing, you hear that high frenetic energy as the camera is coming down. And now as we establish, we're at a school. It's outside, it's kind of daytime, maybe noonish, right? Recess time. You know, basketball stops. As the basketball stops, the camera has stopped moving completely. It's slowed down. It's come to a deaccelerated de pace. It's locked in. We have a character. We have a kid. Let's say a kid who's like 10 or 11. Okay. They're slouched over. Their nose is bleeding. Basketball is in the background on the court. All the kids are going inside. The kid's bleeding. And he's putting, he's stuffing his his files and books back in his book bag and he's hunched over his bench with a bloody nose. This is one shot. This is our opening shot of the movie. 
There is not. There hasn't been a single word of dialogue spoken. There's been no narrator. I'm just explaining what the scene may look like. Okay, just so it paints a picture in your head. Since we're in a podcast. And what does this tell you? The camera panning down, the kids going inside, the basketball stopping dribbling, and we focus on our main subject on a bench, hunched over with a bloody nose, stuffing books back in his book bag. What could it possibly convey? Well, the two most important pieces of information. It's daytime, it's recess, we're at a school. We now know the location, we know the time of day, we have that grounded reality. So... We also have our main subject, or at least maybe one of the main subjects. Could be a secondary character, may not be a main character. However, whatever. But we have an important character we're focusing on right now. It's a kid. So we know that we're going to be following this kid or maybe uh, other kids throughout their journey in school. So within the first 10 seconds of this movie, you now know where you are, what time you're at, and what the fuck's about to happen. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. You don't know why it's going to happen. There could be twists and turns. The school could blow up. We could be sucked into a wormhole and spit out into another dimension. Maybe all the kids are aliens and this is the only human kid on an alien planet. Who the fuck knows? Does it matter? Not in this opening shot because now we know at least the general basics of where we are. It also allows another thing that I didn't mention with what this opening does. Intrigue. Because deep down, even if you don't actually ask yourself this, but deep down your brain's like, why is his nose bleeding? You might assume, okay, maybe he was bullied. Maybe he fell. All right, he's... So why did the director show him putting book bags away? Well, he's at recess. Why would he have his books out? Okay, well, that might further suggest that he was being bullied. So maybe he got punched in the nose and his books were thrown Understand, we, haven't, we have no dialogue so far. We have one shot, one sequence. We now know where we are, uh, what time of day it is, kind of what's going on. And we have enough intrigue to say, okay, so what's going on with this kid? Why is his nose bleeding? So let's say the next shot's a close-up. He's wiping the blood off his nose and he's putting his book bags away. He's zipping up his bag. He slings it over his chest. He steps out of frame, and then we have our third shot. In our third shot, he bumps into somebody, a tall figure, somebody we haven't seen. So it's kind of a surprise to us. Oh, someone's on. And it's a supervisor, well-dressed, kind of neat, slick hair back, nice, kind of endearing face, but stern and calm at the same time, looks down at him and says, you know, Jason, why are you... Jason, you should be getting to class. Or whatever. This is another important thing with cinema language. It also matters the dialogue and the tone. This is a low-down angle at this shot. We are now in the point of view from Jason. So now we know the kid's name. We are no more than 30 seconds into this movie. We now know this kid's name. His name is Jason. It seems like he's been bullied. We're not quite sure. Something's happened, right? He's at school. Recess is over. He's packing up his bags. He's late to get back into class because of his bloody nose. And putting up his book bags and such. There's a supervisor or some sort of authority figure, teacher, supervisor, principal, whomever. We don't actually know their title. We just know they are of authority. How do we know they're of authority? Because we all understand in school when there's an adult on the premises, they're usually of authority when we're a young kid, right? They're sharply dressed, slick back hair, right? Part of that, okay? Maybe they got a walkie on their belt. 
a lot of us who've been through public schools know a lot of supervisors and principals got a walkie-talkie on them at all times. Okay, so maybe there's that too. Maybe not. I don't know. But the most important thing that we understand that establishes the superiority of this new figure that we've been introduced to is the camera angle. Because now we're cutting into a shot from of an over-the-shoulder, right? So an OTS, an angle that's right over Jason's shoulder, since he's the main subject, he's our main character. And we are angling the camera upwards towards this supervisor to establish the height difference. So this supervisor is appearing much taller than he actually is because we are, we're not seeing it from Jason's eyes, we're seeing it just kind of from his general height level. And that disparity in height is a disparity in emotional power dynamic. Because those who are bigger or stronger or taller often, right, emotionally and subconsciously convey that they are of an authority because they are stronger. They are the predator, he's the prey, right? And then the first words spoken are very important to how the rest of the pacing of everything plays out. Or of this character development. Does this authority figure say, Jason, you're late to class, I'm going to have to write you up. Or does the authority say, Jason, has it happened again? Do I need to take you to the nurse? Both of which does not clearly tell us what has happened. So it still pulls that thread of intrigue along as an audience. But it tells us that the supervisor can be one of two different types of emotional arcs. And of course, they could change over time and things can happen, right? Obviously, later down the line. But we're just talking the first not even minute of the story. And this supervisor says or teacher, or whomever, we haven't even clearly established their name or who they are. But if they say, has it happened again, kind of in an endearing and, and warm, loving tone, all right, let's take you to the nurse. That guardian looking out for the kid, taking them in, making sure they're okay. Or is it, hey, why are you late again? Not really caring about the contextual evidence of the bloody nose and the book bags, just saying, you got to get to class, being the stickler. How do we want to convey this character? It just depends on the writer, the director, and the story, and where it goes from there. It's those kinds of things. But in under one minute of what actual screen time would look out, and I'm just playing this in my head, and I don't know if you might be able to, too. Hopefully I've been describing it enough so it kind of paints a nice picture of what an opening of a movie could look like. But in about four to five shot sequences, no more than two or three different setups, five to six different shots possibly, we have not only established the main character, a possible secondary character, whether they're an antagonist or, or a supervisor or a guardian or some sort of moral help for the main character, we've established that something is off. So there is something that is going against the main character that they must overcome, an adversary, an obstacle at play. We have established, most importantly to start off, the time, the place. So we're not confused on where we are and what's going on. And I want you all to just think about those kinds of things. We as filmmakers have to think about this often. How does this play out? This might be a movie I might actually write. I just made up all of that on the spot, by the way. That, there's, I ain't got no paper. I'm walking around my bedroom right now. That is not based on any existing content. That is not me reciting anything. I have just completely made that up from the top of my head, just thinking about like 
an example of a movie. It's actually pretty fun. Hell, I might have to write that into a movie. I don't know. The harder thing actually is not that is actually converting that into a screenplay. So the subtext and the subtleties are shown, not said. It's a balancing act. What's said and what's shown. I have no idea where that story would go. Is he getting bullied? Is the school a different dimension? Who knows? None of that matters. That's not the point. Not right now. The later, when you get to that movie or when you try to write that idea out, yeah, sure, that will matter. But all that mattered in that example is me highlighting how vital it is to set up the bare minimum so you, as an audience member, you, who understand what the fuck is going on at all times. Because if you don't, if we say we did something different, same film, same exact film, I have that image of what we originally established. That's, in my opinion, from my expertise, that's how you do it right. Here's how you do it wrong. Okay? It's not wrong, it's just different. Okay, let me, let me make that clear, because it could be a completely different tone and approach. Right, but uh, let's say I want this film to be kind of a coming-of-age story where this kid overcomes bullying. Let's say we open the film with a shot of the supervisor looking down at the kid. And then we show the kid putting up his book bags, recovering from his bloody nose. Or, better yet, the kid doesn't even have a book bag. Let's say the kid doesn't even have a book bag. He doesn't even have that contextual evidence. There's no... Um, kids playing, there's no basketball thumping, there's no uh, uh, school bell going off, and it's not a wide-angle establishing shot panning down. We are merely just a close, you know, close-up angle, kind of over the shoulder of the kid, showing the perspective of this authority figure. And we have a reverse angle of showing the kid wiping the blood off his face. And then the authority says, okay, let's go inside. And then they go, in, they are, okay, let's go. And then they go you would have no fucking clue what was going on. If it's the same film, it takes place in a school, this kid's being bullied by someone else, what you might immediately assume is this supervisor, this adult, just struck this kid for various reasons. Oh, God. But you don't even know if he's a supervisor. He's just a slick-dressed fucker, uh, you know, overpowering some kid, and some kid's recovering from a bloody nose. Maybe it's his dad. He might have, like, an idea. Okay, maybe it's a principal supervisor. Let's go. Because it's a kid, right? But there's no external shots. It's all close-ups. It's all really tight. So there's no background. There's no establishing. They're all outside on a playground with a, back, uh, with a basketball court in the background. There's no sounds of the alarm bells and, you know, school bells or kids shuffling their feet. Nothing like that. You're kind of outside. There's daylight. So you can kind of establish it's daytime and you're outside. Maybe. But if it's really close up, maybe not. You might think you're inside in a gymnasium. I don't know. My point is, you might, you will eventually piece together that they're in a school because a school is a pretty, 
easy to identify, and this is a pretty grounded story. But you understand how I'm taking the same exact characters and the same exact story setting, I'm just starting it at a different point and showing you a different angle. An angle that we have in the first version, but we have all this other context to set it up. And the context doesn't take long. It doesn't take more than a minute, and it's all visual. It doesn't waste your time. It just gets right to the point, and it shows you everything you need to translate what's going on. But in this, you kind of jump right in. Some movies want you to jump in. They want to reduce your, make it tunnel vision and have you have less information so it's more of a mystery. You're piecing things together. But I think personally in this type of story, it was perfectly fine that the mystery was how did he get the bloody nose, who's the supervisor, and where do we go from here? That's plenty of intrigue to keep you along. This isn't a suspense thriller. This isn't a Christopher Nolan split in time, the kid wakes up over with a bloody nose and a supervisor looking over him. That's a whole different movie that I don't, nah, I'm not trying to convey. That's the difference of some, some of this cinema language. You know? The visual, metaphorical, subtext components at play that can radically change how we as viewers interpret and understand what is being shown. And if you can't understand the basics or you get lost in the weeds, it makes it harder for you to be emotionally and mentally invested and care about what's to come. For example, I just watched The Nun 2 with my buddy Anthony. We had a good time. It was a fun movie. And I'd say the first and second act, most films are split between three acts. It's hard to identify them unless you watch films a lot. Right? First act is kind of setting, establishing, having some conflict and introducing the conflict at play. Second act is fleshing it out, having the heart of everything, and having the ultimate climax in the conflict. And the third act might be the tail end of that part, and then the res resolution. You know? Not everything's three acts. Some are four, some are six, some are a circular act, like the Dan Harmon theory. There's a bunch of different plays, but usually it's structured like a three-act play. It's safe to assume that, and it, it you know, unless the creator says otherwise, or unless you can clearly identify a difference, it's you know, it's easy to at least talk about it that way, okay? So the first and second act is okay, it's fun, it's entertaining, you're kind of along for the ride. But it's disjointed. There's insert shots and there's moments where you, you lose time and place. They reuse the same fucking hallway like 20 times. It's insane. It gets to a point where you're like, do you guys realize you're using the same hallway? Like, is everything supposed to take in this place in this hallway? It feels like they lost all their money, and they just had to stay in this one location. And it's a Conjuring Universe movie. You'd think they'd have enough money to jump at least a different motherfucking hallway. There's so many times they go back to the same hallway, and you're like, what the fuck? I've never seen a horror movie go to the same exact shot and spot every time. I mean, there's other places, there's other locations, but even the first nun had more diversity. It felt like you were moving along, so... The main building, which is also coincidentally a school, is not established. There is no, there, there are very, there are few like wide angle shots that give you an idea that it's a building. You don't know if it's a church, you don't know if it's a school, you don't know it's a boarding school till later. Of course, you see other contacts, children that play, that kind of thing. Sure, you figure it out and they eventually say it's a boarding school, but it's not really shown to you immediately. But once you know it's a boarding school, you still don't know the layout. Now, sometimes in a movie, you don't need to know the lay of the land. It doesn't matter. You just need to know where your characters are in time and space. But if something feels off or not natural, it will throw you out of immersion, and it will make you not care. 
and it will be subconscious as a viewer. So if I was shooting a kitchen scene, and I had this wide angle that established in relation when you enter the, the door that enters the room and the kitchen, let's say the stove, the fridge, all the kitchen utensils and such. And the characters cross here and there and do that, and then we cut into it and show close-ups and medium angles, all these things, right? But if for some reason in that process while you're watching it, I fuck it up and I flip things around in a way where it feels like the kitchen is now right where the door is and there's not any distance between, it breaks the continuity or the logic of where things are in time and place from the first establishing shot that's there, you're going to be thrown off. Now, sometimes psychological thrillers do this on purpose to fuck with you, and that's brilliant. But other than that, it's bad. Right? There's technical rules to this. There's things in place. There are ways that we as filmmakers know how to manage and manipulate these things. But most importantly, it's why and how do we do it. It's not just how do we do it. Yeah, okay, cool. If you know how to do it, great. But why would you do it? Is there any reason? With The Nun, you had no sense of location. And the thing about horror movies is you should be given as much contextual evidence as possible to at least understand why you should be afraid for the character, right? And if you don't even know why you're afraid for the character because you don't know where the hell the character is walking through, you're like, well, shit, they're back at the same place. There should be people around the corner. They're fine, right? If you're more confused trying to figure out what's going on and where you are in the story than you are about, oh, my God, the thrills, it wasn't immersive. I wasn't. Usually, even when a movie isn't as good, and I wasn't expecting this to be a masterpiece, I was just expecting this to be a fun horror film, and it was at times, for sure, but I still get a little scared. I'm mentally ill. I am not that stable. There are times where I will watch a horror movie, and it will fuck me up when it shouldn't, especially in theaters for the first time, when I don't know what's coming, and I'm kind of like in the dark theater, and I'm really immersed, but this film just had cuts, weird cuts that broke the pacing, broke the suspense broke the level of logic of where the hell we are in time and place, and it made it really hard to connect because every time you do that, your audience disengages. Their brain's like, huh? <laughs> and with me and Anthony being filmmakers and, and you know television makers and all this and keeping a keen eye, it fucked with us more, but even if you don't realize that stuff up front, subconsciously your brain's wrestling with it, and you're trying to piece it together like an unsolved puzzle. And you're spending all your energy on that, and you're actually not really focused or immersed as you should be. It's the same reason why in video games they call it game-breaking bugs as opposed to regular bugs, right? Game-breaking bugs are literally, well, literally, they could break the game. Meaning, the whole video game crashes, and you can't play it. Okay, obviously that's a game-breaking bug. But they also consider game-breaking bugs immersion-breaking bugs. Or sometimes they differentiate it. But it's like, this really important character is seen and the helicopter starts, starts glitching out. The propeller starts fidgeting. Or the character falls through the world. You know, glitches that we've seen before. Makes it really hard. And then all of a sudden you're reminded just instantly, oh yeah, yeah, I'm playing a game. Like you know you're playing a game, just like you know you're watching a movie. But you're immersed in the world. You kind of forget. You kind of seep into the world. And as soon as something does something to break you out of it, you're like, oh, fuck. And it's so much harder to get re-engaged. Because you can't trust that you won't be broken back out of it. I hope, if you're listening, if you enjoy this, thank you, and I appreciate it. Watch my films as I make more. But also, I really hope that you enjoyed that little breakdown I did of the, of the opening school shot. I hope that if you're really sitting and paying attention, or at least thinking about it, it, it painted that picture to you.
And hopefully, through my explanation, hopefully I described this properly and made it made sense where that was painted clearly and the second example wasn't, or was painted clearly but shown that, like, it's not as engaging. You have to give time for your audience to understand where they are, and that's just one component of the beautiful language of cinema. But there's so much more. The emotional, the subtext of everything. The why, who, what, when, where, how. Carrying people along a story, letting them understand, letting them feel, letting them identify, and letting them root, or cry, or jump up in glee. That emotional response is really hard to get, but it's, but it's the most important thing you get. Because once someone emotionally cares or is invested in something, you've done your job. When you win someone's heart, you can win their mind. You can win someone's mind over and therefore their heart. It's just harder to do that. You have to be very smart and you have to know that you're breaching the intellectual side of something, which is harder to do in film. The reason why we find movies cheesy or boring or just cannon fodder, why we put movies on sometimes in the background, is because we don't care about the stakes. It doesn't have any involvement in us. We don't feel like we're part of this story. We don't care about the characters. We don't care what's going on. If you're a Star Wars fan, you care about Star Wars. I do too. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. It's one of my favorite fa films of all time and favorite franchises, you know? I care about Star Wars. I'm not just going to throw that on in the background for no reason. I'm going to sit down and watch Star Wars, right? I care about it. It means a lot to me. Whereas a new Transformers movie, I understand that some people care about it. I have no hate for them, but I don't care about it as much. I could just throw that on just casually, not fully pay attention, watch, you know, text people, watch it. Now, I'm a film guy. I usually, by the time I put on a film, I'm pretty invested regardless, but still, you know what I mean? They don't spend as much time to get me to care about what the fuck's going on. The conflict has to jeopardize things that we care about, whether a belief or a person or a thing. It's what gets us to be emotionally invested and want us to root for or to push on through the story, pulling them in. So making a film is a complex art. From the technicality, from the understanding, from the cinema language and the communication, from the pressures of being on set and off set, from orchestrating and coordinating everything, to consider the story, to consider the audience, to consider the well-being of everybody involved making it. Film is a complex thing to make, but by God, is it a beautiful one. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. And until next time, this is Psychic on Psychic Thoughts.